Welcome to Wanda's Ticks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, the deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. So we should pause, take a breath, and exercise our options and never give away our agency because there's always more than one way. And we are so excited to have one of my favorite creative people in the studio, Linda Steele II, um, who is um, performing this weekend uh, in the East Bay Dances, uh, a program hosted by the Oakland Ballet Company, which is also having some wonderful um, programs right now. Um, It has a Jangala, a family-friendly ballet inspired by the South Indian classical dance um, opened last night, continues through tomorrow, Saturday. So you might want to visit oaklandballet.org. Um, but in the meantime, um, Linda still is, wow, I mean, for those who are following her career, she is just so awesome. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Linda, for getting up so early um, <laughs> to join us to talk about, you know, what you have planned for Sunday uh, at East Bay Dances, June 2nd, 4 p.m. at the Odell Johnson Theater at Laney College. And uh, you can get tickets at oaklandballet.org. And um, Linda Steele, uh, choreographer and dancer, is also improvisational dance artist and creator, formerly trained at Marin Ballet and Marin School of the Arts before receiving her BFA from Dominican University of California, where she also studied art history. She has been honored to have performed original works by Alonzo King, Drew Jacoby, Mara, is it Maria or Mara? Maria Kerr. Yeah. Maria Kerr's. Mar- Say it again. Maria Kerr. Maria Kerr's uh, Tiny Pistol. Uh, Citra Bell, uh, Katie Faulkner, and recently with uh, Jocelyn Mathis-Reed, uh, Urban Dance, Urban Jazz Dance Company, uh, Dazon Solian, um, Kendra Kimbrough Dance Ensemble, that's where I last saw her. Um, is it Dot F. Lee? Is, oh, how do you Flea, pronounce that? Flea Dance. Flea Dance. That's Frankie Peterson's uh, company, Flea Dance. Okay. And Capacitor. 
dance, among others. Uh, capacitor, as in the um, the way the the uh, the school or the uh, that that looks at um, movement to help with trauma. That capacitor. No, it, it's a uh, it's a oh. like movement based. It's a movement based science theater. She, the choreographer Jody Lomas, she blends uh, dance and science together to create one of a kind dance productions. Okay. And that's wow, really interesting. Where does where does that ha- where where does that happen? Is she here or somewhere else? She's located in San Francisco. Yeah, she does a lot of really oh, amazing okay. creations. Oh yeah, let me know when you do something else with her. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, Linda, um, is it Linda the second or Linda two? Linda Steele the second. Okay, because you don't have a steel there. You just have Linda the second. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Linda Steele the second has presented, I was like, okay, just a little abbreviated. <laughs> Linda Steele the second has presented her solo work in various dance festivals and art events, including the renowned Ebony Fashion Fair. What year was that? That was back in 2008. I was okay. a tiny dancer back in high school. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, she has studied and choreographed dance for film with Made in France and has performed internationally with Ananda Ray's uh, mm-hmm. uh, Quimera Quimera Tribe, yeah. uh-huh. yeah. Urban Dance, Urban Jazz Dance Company. Um, is uh, is that um, Urban Jazz? Is that Reginald um, Ray Savage? No, that's Antoine Hunter. Okay. He's a, he's oh right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. He has a. Is his um festival in August this year? Yes, the Bay Area Jazz Festival that will be happening in August. Okay. Okay. Uh, Karina Kanar, if I'm pronouncing correctly, and other Karina Kinnine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Karina Kinnine. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I want people to be able to find these folks. So, uh, yeah, I definitely want you to correct me so they can, when they hear it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's who that is. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, we are real excited because also um, Linda Steele II, she is the um, uh, the gallery manager at Joyce Gordon Gallery in Oakland, and so you will see her there as well. She's just like a busy woman when she is not traveling. And so this weekend, oh my goodness, tell us about it, Linda, because your what you're going to be doing is really different and unique, and 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 that's why you're on because it's like oh my gosh. And then and then maybe you could talk about some of the. Um, uh, some of the dancers or companies that you're going to be performing with because there are a lot of you all and it all looks so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So um, thank you very much once again for having me today. I really appreciate it. Um, and a little bit about the work I'll be presenting. So as you mentioned, I am an improvisational dance artist. And basically in loose terms, that just means that um, I don't like to set um, choreography on myself before I perform. I do like to use music for one um, to sort of guide my dance performance and my dance journey um, to share with the viewers. So a lot of my work has been developed through my really, really keen relationship with music. I, I've always said that I love music first and that fuels my love for dance. So in a way of keeping 
my my choreography open and keeping myself present in the moment, it's it forced me in a way to really um, sink down into who I am as an artist and to let that essence come out naturally and not trying to preset something or and over-rehearse it, you know, and keeping things fresh. Um, so, yeah, a lot of my process is starts with picking either music that I'm really, uh, I gravitate towards or a feeling in a music or the mood of the music or where the music is trying to take me. I gravitate towards that the most. And I really just kind of open myself up and let that inform my movement. And so far it's been an amazing journey and I'm really very, very grateful for being able to go this deep in my process. And it's only the surface, you know, so there's so much more to discover. So I'm pretty excited about sharing it with everyone. Um, but as far as other, other, other pieces in the show, I'm sharing the bill with um, some really, really amazing choreographers, local choreographers all here from the Bay. Uh, I'm actually going to be performing two pieces. I'll be presenting my own work, and then I'm going to be performing in a duet with another choreographer named Alyssa Mitchell. And I've been working with Alyssa. We actually both went to Dominican, not for dance in the same department, but we both went to Dominican together. Um, and I'll be presenting, or well, I'll be dancing in a duet with her. Um, but there's a host, such a host of really amazing art that's happening in the dance world, um, of course. And this is just a snippet of a larger piece of pie that, you know, is the dance world and the art scene in the Bay Area. So I'm grateful to be on this bill and sharing the day with, with such amazing movers and creators. So I highly recommend mm -hmm. if you're free, please come and enjoy some dance culture from the Bay. Yeah, yeah. So um, how um, is Graham, um, the stick uh, artistic director at Oakland Ballet Company, um, is he familiar with your work? Um, is that how um, you are a part of this wonderful um, program on Sunday? Um, I don't know if he personally is. Um, I'd like to hope so. <laughs> um, but this is funny. I actually, when I first found out about this, this dance festival was last year, and I applied mm -hmm. and everything to go, and I was all set to be on the bill, and I got really badly injured, so I had to sit mm -hmm. that year out. So this is actually the second year I'm in the show, but the first year I'll be performing. Um, so it's it's a very special kind of um show for me one it's also around my birthday so it's kind of like a nice birthday present to myself to be able to dance and share some some new work and some new landscapes that are that are you know brewing inside so um mm -hmm. i am very grateful to be able to be in this this production yeah 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 when you um when you share with me your process uh you know that you have the music however what you're going to perform is not really planned. I'm like, wow, that's really brave of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. How do you rehearse? Um, how do you rehearse something like that? Like, be, you know, make sure that you're really familiar with the music, or like, and and could you share with us in advance um, your your set list? Like, where where do you start and where do you go and is it about the mood of the music? Because I was just thinking, when you when you shared your process, does that mean that if you have the same music and you perform this some other time, does the work change? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 
music in a way, and I and I I put this in in the program because it's it's really interesting. Um, when I first learned about this, you know, through my my dance journey in college and stuff, um, I came across something that that really opened my eyes to what music really is and what it could be, and you know, it's melodies and everything, but everything you hear could essentially be music if you're listening to it with the right ear. Um, and if you're letting it inform you in that, in that musical way. So I really got into really just honing in on what it is about music that I like and that moves me. And a lot of it is, it's, it's textures that invoke different, you know, um, thoughts or emotions that may arise that I want to inform through the landscape of my dance, not necessarily make set choreographed movements, but just have it inform the landscape of my dance journey. And so a lot of the times what I try to do is to make music visual in a way. Music is a very, it's an, it's an auditory art, you know, you take it into your ears, but what if we could see what music could essentially look like through movement? And being so tapped in in a way where you take that musical landscape and you manifest it physically so that people can hear it, but also see it through your dance journey. So that's been kind of my my process and going about it. I usually do either pick a, a piece of music or try to, you know, somehow create some sort of piece of music that really does bring up something for me. And it doesn't have to be a good something, bad something, just brings up something that makes me want to move. And once I get that, that urge to want to move, then the rest, you just have to get out of your own way and let it come out, you know. <laughs> but a lot of mm-hmm. it is you have to really, really know where the music is, not necessarily know the music, but know where the music might take you and just be open to where that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what's your um tell us some of the titles of your your collaborator your you know the music <laughs> that sort of provides <laughs> uh the tapestry for you to be able to do the work yeah. that you're going to be doing. So um I I do really gravitate a lot to one of my favorite composers growing up was Philip Glass. Uh, I love what he could mm. do with the piano. I absolutely mm-hmm. fell in love with what he could do with the piano. So, um, and I actually I started b- ballet and piano at the same time, but um, had to give piano up because ballet got too demanding. So, I'll always have a spot, soft spot for piano. Um, and I remember mm-hmm. listening to his work, and he—if you've ever listened to Philip Glass, he literally takes you to another—he takes you to another plane for sure. And I was so captivated by how music can literally transport you, you know, a lot like all the other arts, it can literally drop you in a completely different place and time. Um, so I, I generate a lot of movement ideas from his from his compositions growing up. Um, but in this particular show, I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited about the, the piece of composition that I'm working at or working with. Um, it includes the text, the voice from Alan Watts, who's, um, a, a deep thinker to me, a very deep thinker that I, I really appreciate his words that he's shared with us, you know, as far as like philosophy and, and all of that good stuff. So I felt, I felt it necessary to include his, his text 
And a lot of the times I'll I'll work with something like that, um, someone, you know, speaking on the track. I usually don't, but sometimes I do. Uh, it informs the work in a different way. But mm-hmm. most of the time, most of the time it's, it's, it's different types of music. I'm a very eclectic music lover, you know. I've never really liked one type of music. If it moves me, then I like it, you know, and that's a very open, <laughs> it's a very open statement. If it moves me, then I like it in the simplest terms. Um, but the composition that I'm going to be performing to you on Sunday is uh, a composition of Alan Watts' speaking, and then um, also it's this artist called Goldmund, G-O-L-M-U-N-D. Um, they're not local at all. I think they're kind of like a popular um, music group, but I'm going to be using, I've spliced together some of their their compositions as well to make this this sort of music landscape that'll that'll guide my performance. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and um, Alan Watts' text. What's the uh, theme? Um, he talks. He'll be talking in this one about uh, dreams and about how hmm. how we. Um, form our reality and how we perceive our reality and mm-hmm. what that means for the self. And I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's very okay. like, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very heartfelt. And it'll make you think. Mm-hmm. Mm, not, of course. <laughs> yeah. And um, tell us about your costuming. So costuming, um, I never really go too much when it comes to costuming because I do want to keep it mostly on the movement that's that's being shared. So a lot of the times um, I, I don't really dress up in a costume. I try to keep it a little more, a little more human and a little more personal as part, you know, as, as far as like what you'll be seeing me perform in. So I usually wear, mm-hmm. I usually wear all black, but different, you know, um, different styles of it and everything, but usually just keep it very simple and formal and, and keep it really about the movement and not so much about, um, you know, putting on a show or entertaining, you know? Mm-hmm. So not much to expect there, but the movement, you'll, <laughs> you'll see a lot. Trust me. It'll, so you'll remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, wow. So tell us about um, just sort of how you um, came to, be a dancer. You mentioned that you had to um, to give up piano. Um, so, you know, art seems to be a real part of your life. Um, I think you grew up in San Francisco, but maybe you could tell us about just sort of, you know, how you came to be the woman that you are presently. You know, as as a creative, you know, as a dancer, you know, as an artist. And as a person who loves the arts, and and definitely, um, from what I've seen you in, you know, you see art as a as a uh, a tool for transformation, um, yeah, and agency. Uh, it's a way of becoming, uh, you know, using these tools, you know, dance, music, visual arts, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, so I, my. Excuse me. My family is from the San Francisco Bay Area, and we lived we've lived all over the Bay. Um, mm-hmm. But I got into dancing first. My, of course, I have to give it to my mom. She saw it way before I did. Um, <laughs> she used to tell me 
used to tell me at the end, like when we'd be watching movies and, and on the TV and the credits would go up at the end when all the, you know, the dreamy music would come on, that would be my stage time. And I would always hop in front of the TV and do my little solos and stuff like that. And so she always had an eye out to put me in, in dance classes. And then um, that's where I arrived at Marin Ballet, where I got my start in formal training. And um, mm-hmm. it, set, it set a foundation for, for the, the more um, technical side of dance, which I really do appreciate having. Um, it wasn't until around high school, college, when I really started to branch out of classical ballet and really open my eyes to all that dance could be. And up until that point, it had been something that, you know, like I, I really loved and valued ballet and um, it, it really did, dance really did help me. But at the same time, just studying classical ballet was very limiting for me as an artist, which I found out later. And it was a little bit difficult for me to find my voice as an artist and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to move. Um, I got to college and started working a lot with um the Lions Ballet BFA program at Dominican and all of the teachers and faculty there really, they push you to open your horizon. They push you out of your box um, in the most nurturing and generous way. You know, they, they open you up so that you can see all that you can be as far as an artist. And one of the, one of my favorite things about that program was it, it teaches you how to be an artist, but also a human and how those two are, are, not separate from one another they inform each other you know so that's where I first started to dive into my art as something that is a lifeline for me and not just something that I love doing and that I'm good at or whatever you know Um, and then it wasn't until working with a few choreographers later in my career that I really started to notice that dance was was my 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 balm my life balm you know, it it helps me heal. It helps me really grapple with things that I couldn't comprehend that were going on in life. And not just dance, but just being creative and being open to being creative and, and moving and, and listening to music and being moved and seeing things and being inspired, you know, and always having that creative engine going really helped me figure out and, and grapple with different things in life that didn't make sense to me, you know. And mm-hmm. now dance has become, in this stage of my, of my life, dance has definitely become my vehicle of, of personal transformation. And that's, you know, so different than how I saw dance when I was growing up as a kid, you know. Um, all the different choreographers that I've been so thankful to meet and work with and the opportunities that I've been afforded to share my work, it's been really gratifying because each of them has really informed me as an artist. And you really see yourself open up, and if you really let yourself dive into your own voice, you know, and not be scared of that voice. A lot of the times growing up, I wouldn't really want to step out the box because nobody else was, so I was like, well... You know, I mean, I know how I feel about dance, but I'll just keep it to myself, you know, and just really being okay with owning your own voice, owning your own craft, and putting your confident foot forward and just letting the rest fall in place. So it's been mm-hmm. it's been really inspiring, really inspiring. And especially now, like, 
I'm starting to see some of my dance colleagues growing up, like, you know, they're doing amazing things and knowing that we're all like our love for this is, is so strong. Just like, just like any artist, you know, it's, it's just so nice to see. It's so nice to see people still appreciate it. So mm-hmm. I'm grateful right. every day. I'm able to dance grateful every day <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, let's see, I was wondering, um, if, uh, you know, sort of do you have a website and how can people stay in touch with you to find out where you're going to be performing next? Yeah. <laughs> what you're going to be doing next? Yeah, so um, I do actually have a website. It is under construction at the moment. Um, there's a, a few different things that I've been wanting to update, so I'm finally taking time to just get it all done in one go. So um Mm-hmm. I'll wait to give that out for now, but, and I'm, I've always been, you know, not the best at promoting my own shows just because it's, it's always the, the farthest thing from my mind, you know, um, but I do know that I will be performing in, um, like you mentioned, Antoine Hunter, he's going to be doing the Bay Area Death Dance Festival in August. Um, I'll definitely be a part of that. And he's doing some amazing work as well. Antoine Hunter, if you're not familiar with him, um, him and his company, like they've, they've been really breaking down barriers to, to make different issues within the community known and make people aware of them. So I'm really grateful mm-hmm. to be able to share the same space with them. Um, let's see, uh, working on a few different things with a couple choreographers as well. You know, there's always new projects brewing. Um, so I guess we'll just have to stay tuned and I'll let you know. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> there's so many things happening all the time. So um there will be more, of course, of course. Right, yeah, cool, cool, wow. Well, this has been really, really wonderful speaking to you and uh, wondering if there's anything else you want to share about your career, about your work, um, you know, with with other um, aspiring, you know, artists. Um, I would just like to say uh, I'm grateful, like I said, I'm grateful to be able to dance I'm grateful to be able to share my story, my work, um, and I really hope that you all enjoy it. And if not to come see me, please just come out to see what art is being made right now, you know. There's a lot of things going on, you know, we won't dive into it, but there's a lot of things going on, too many things going on in the world, you know, so it's always nice to stay inspired. So I always encourage people Mm. to get creative go out and be inspired in the world. You'll be surprised at how much it'll change you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, lastly, when uh, you said, uh, and when I was reading your bio, that you also studied art history, and I was wondering, um, how how does does this inform inform your work? Um, Like, for instance, um, you know, stylistically, you know, as as a choreographer, the kind of work that you do, is that informed by your um uh, by by but, your academic train is training as well, I mean your research and your other other interests? Like for instance, do you yes. have a mentor that does what you what you do? Like are there is there are there people? <laughs> are there yeah. other dancers? Are there other choreographers that? Oh, you are a part of this school or this particular philosophical? 
um, uh, I mean, trajectory. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say specifically, um, but there's always there's always dance artists that that you know imp- improvise because they they want to be able to feel in the moment, and I do want to give them credit wherever they are. There's they're dance artists, and I'm sure just with any artist, just improvisational artists, and just being um, being a, a creative force, but open to mm-hmm. being a creative force in the moment. Like that's always something that's going to be around, and people are always going to appreciate that. Um, but as far as like me personally, uh, I I would like to think the work that I do right now is is something unique to my experience. But I'm sure you know, being an artist, we're all in the same boat. So I wouldn't doubt that there's someone doing similar, going the similar path that I'm taking as well. Um, but yes, my studies in, in art history, I would say I'm an art lover. I'm always going to be an art lover first. And then from that, you know, being a music lover, that come, dance comes out of that. So um, a lot of my studies in art history has informed just my artistic vocabulary in general. Um, there's a lot of things that you learn in art history that 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 you can either use or you can you know just bank and store as far as information but there's a wealth of of different artistic backgrounds and 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 beauty out there that really if you know how to touch it and know how to connect with it it really can um inform your work like it has mine and i really do think that if 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 people really took the time even artists if they branch out of their own specific medium and just be open to being informed by all different types of art, all different types of art. It'll, it'll really help, you know, um, inform yourself as, as an artist as well. So my little personal two bits. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cool. Super. Wow. Well, thank you so much. And um, hope you have a wonderful rest of the day and really look forward to seeing, uh, seeing your work, um, on Sunday as a part of the uh, East Bay Dances um, hosted by Oakland Ballet Company. Again, that's Sunday, June 2nd, 2019 at 4 p.m. at the Odell Johnson Theater at Laney College. And for tickets, you can go to oaklandballet.org. And again, Oakland Ballet has um, programs um, tonight and tomorrow as well. And um, there are going to be some excerpts from from this uh, program tonight, tomorrow, which opened yesterday as a part of the East Bay Dances. So, yeah, so looking forward to other conversations, Linda. This is so awesome. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you are quite welcome. You have a good rest of the day and weekend, and we're looking forward to seeing you on Sunday and, gosh, and getting that lesson and seeing that beauty. You are a wonderful woman to watch moving. Well, thank you very much. Hope to see you guys later. (laughs) All right. Peace and blessings. Bye. So our next guest um, uh, are the uh, dynamic duo, (laughs) the husband-wife team, um, Kali O'Reilly and Katara Crossley. They are going to be joining us to talk about the 21st Annual San Francisco Black Film Festival, which is June 13th through 16th, and they have some new um, 
it's a new uh a new collaboration in the works for this this 21st year and uh so while we wait for them to join us um let's see about playing something um to uh to warm up the air <laughs> Let's see. I think we'll play um <clears throat> you would think I would have it all ready to go. <laughs> Let's see. Um well I think we'll play uh what are we gonna play? What are we feeling like? Uh <laughs> By the time I figure it out, they will be in the studio. <laughs> Let's see. Um, oh, no, that's not it. Um, we'll play a little little Desert Rose. Um, actually, um, oh, I think I'll, I'll play Destiny Muhammad, Walking on Water. I like that one. What they said on so many days Looking back at yesterday Hoping for a brighter tomorrow Church on Chatter Travel Cookie Mouse Southern red dirt twinkled in my hair I knew one day it would be Sunday
That was Destiny Muhammad, Harpers from the Hood, Walking on Water. And we have in the studio Jackie Wright, um, my colleague, who is, I don't know, Jackie, how would you describe yourself? The publicist, partner? Um, <laughs> um, I, I would say woman. that I, I am a person that just loves the San Francisco Black Film Festival and um <laughs> The great work that Ave Montague started 19 years ago, or like 21 years ago, rather. Yeah, 21 exactly. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I am a fan of the uh, Black Film Festival, and I have been involved in this labor of love of uh, for, I guess, about five years or so. Uh, and helping mm-hmm. to get the word out about how great the film festival is because it's so much more than just entertainment. It's it's an amazing platform to get various ideas across, and it it has so much value uh, to San Francisco. It really does, considering uh, the impact of tourism uh, when we have people from around the world uh, that actually come into San Francisco um, that um, bring films about for or by the African diaspora. So it's pretty, it's 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 a treasure uh, that I don't think people totally appreciate the whole aspect of how great it is, except for people like you that give opportunities uh, for us to talk about what's happening with the film festival. So. Thank you, Wanda, mm-hmm. for all of your great work that you do in the community all the time. Oh, you're quite welcome. Yeah, I was looking um, <clears throat> at um, a press release that I had noticed that this particular year um, the uh, the presenters, um, you know, Kali O'Reilly and uh, Katara Crosley, they uh, they have a new partnership with the um, the Advanced Imaging Society (AIS). Um, a group of um, Hollywood stakeholders, including Walt Disney Studios, DreamWorks Animation, 20th Century Fox, Marvel uh, Studios, Pixar Animation, Amazon, Google, and others. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell us about this this new collaboration and what that means for the um, the San Francisco uh, San Francisco Black Film Festival. And and then another thing, for the first time, uh, they're going to introduce the Urban Pitch Festival, which is an opportunity for urban storytellers to pitch their stories, movies, television programs, et cetera, to industry professionals. And I know, um, I think this has always been um, sort of um, an opportunity. Uh, this film festival always is open to helping uh, filmmakers uh, find larger audiences, but this seems like something special and uh, something that the Advanced Imaging Society is going to help facilitate. And uh, so anyway, yeah, so tell us about all well, of these I, things, as well as special programs and things like that, which is always really super. Um, oh, uh, you know, we really can't thank our, our new partners enough for all the, the great opportunities. It's just it's the beginning of a great uh, opportunity that's just, I, I feel, is going to uh, put the uh, film festival on the map as it should. Uh, there have been, um, you know, small uh, relationships here and there uh, with individual, um, some of the individual um, 
industry uh, leaders like Sony, ex, ex, et cetera. But by having this uh, this particular uh, relationship, it's just going to be uh, more give and take and giving a platform, a wider platform for uh, the independent um, artists to be able to interact with uh, people that are already uh, very um, sourced and have the resources and that sort of thing. So it's going to mean for the independent filmmaker uh, a quicker uh, opportunity to get that uh, worldwide audience that they wouldn't have had uh, before. So we really appreciate and thanks so very much, um, you know, the partnership that we have. And, and it's it's a growing thing. So more to come. And one of the things that I think uh, – people need to look out for as a result of this. Uh, It's not going to just be a one-time, once-a-year event that happens over Father's Day uh, weekend or Juneteenth, and that's usually uh, when the film festival occurs, but there will be other opportunities for a wider um, um, event that can happen um, and everything. So that's what I think is the significance there. And especially for the um, independent filmmaker, you know, um, blood, sweat, and tears, and so many times um, their films are only seen at that one uh, film festival. And so with this, it means an opportunity for people to be able to um, expand the audience that they have and and have – people that have been in the industry to see the raw talent that's out there. And so as a result, um, they will have people that uh, will be coming into the industry with new ideas, different concepts and things that can, um, you know, just only explode and make it better for everyone. So it's, it's a great, great, great relationship, and we're very appreciative of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so where are the films screening? Um, and also um, tell us about, <clears throat> you know, some of the films um, and uh, how people can get tickets uh, and any special programs. Well, I would, um, first of all, I would say for people to actually check us out uh, on the um, Internet and go to www.sfbff.org. That's sfbff.org for San Francisco Black Film Festival, and also if you would, if if you're on feed uh, on Twitter, uh, great uh, releases of what we're doing. uh, You can find that by going to at sfbff.org. Once again, that's at sfbff.org. And so um, the time frame for the festival this year is uh, June 13th through the 16th. And it is, um, you know, once again, we have 60 or more films for people uh, to take a look at. Um, I'm excited about an opportunity that's going to happen the day before that's actually going to be at Cinemark Theaters. Uh, And this is going to be the one... um, appearance um, that we're going to have at Cinemark. We usually have the films uh, at various locations, and that's why it's always good to go to the website and take a look. And and we basically say uh, 
to the people that are coming in, the filmmakers and uh, the audience that's out there, that it gives you a tour of San Francisco, the different places that we usually have have the uh, film festival. So on June 12th, from 4 to 6, and I hope you can be there too, uh, Wanda, that we're going to have a media briefing uh, that's going to be highlighting all of the films, and plus uh, we're going to screen a couple of films. And this particular media briefing is going to be in tribute to our late San Francisco public defender, um, Jeff Adachi. Jeff Adachi, mm-hmm. as many of may know, uh, was also a filmmaker, and he was a great friend of the San Francisco Black Film Festival, and usually the films that uh, he was involved in or came out to support were ones around restorative justice and prison reform, those sorts of things. And so we're going to have a briefing highlighting a couple of, uh, a particular film uh, by um, a couple of black brothers um, who are really brothers, uh, um, you know, uh, biological brothers, um, Jeremy and Justin um, Givens, and they have this film called Disparity, and it talks about the difference between how uh, black people are treated in terms of sentencing uh, compared to um, white people. And just the the injustice that goes on, and it's a it's a short. It's about twenty twenty minutes long, so it's going to be one of the films that we are going to uh, screen at the briefing. And additionally, um, there is a film uh, about Nico Wilson, and it's the Nico Wilson social biography that talks about uh, a young man who had been charged with murder. And he was nowhere near where the murder occurred. He didn't. Uh, it didn't. He wasn't involved in any planning for it, etc. He got caught up um, with, uh, you know, how it happens in families uh, sometimes. Uh, the wrong crowd, and he, he was in jail for ten years. But because of the work of his brothers, who happened to be attorneys. One, uh, Jacques Wilson, who works uh, in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, and also um, his brother, Jacques Wilson, who's also uh, an attorney, they were able to finally get their uh, brother freed as a result of political action. And that was uh, the work of Nancy Skinner, California State Senator, uh, Senator Nancy Skinner, basically uh, championed uh, the SB 1437. And in SB 1437, uh, it says, you know, people who do not physically um, kill someone uh, if they do, are not involved in the planning, they should not um, be put uh, to death or be left uh, in cells for all of their lives. And so we have those those two films. One is... Uh, of course, a dramatic uh, portrayal that's a feature, 20, uh, 20 minutes. And the other is a documentary. So that's going to be at Cinemark on June 12th. So uh, you'll be looking for, this is just evolving, so be looking for, um, you know, tickets to that. They, it will be free. 
uh, of course, mm-hmm. it's a media briefing, and so uh, it's it's there for media to find out about what's happening with the the festival, et cetera. But also, the public is is um, will be able to come. So, the, but the mar- majority of um, films are going to be. Um, Jackie, uh, let me um, let me interrupt you for a second. Um, where is Cinemark? For those Cinemark that don't live in San Francisco. Theater. Uh, it's at it's in the San Francisco uh, Center, like where all the shopping is. Uh, it's right okay. above where Bloomingdale's is. It's 845 Mission Street, 845 okay. Mission okay. Street. Or you can come into um, the building at 845 Market Street and walk through all of the wonderful shops and and uh, restaurants and everything and come up to the theater. So uh, we were really uh, very pleased partner with uh, Cinemark to be able to uh, highlight what's going to be happening at the festival, and that's going to be from 4 to 6 o'clock. And after the filming of Disparity and Nico Wilson, a social biography, um, there's going to be a panel discussion uh, to talk about some of the issues around um, uh, the the prison reform that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And I could go on and on one. It's like one of the things that that excites me about the San Francisco Film Festival is that it's a platform for conversations about the very tough uh, issues in life. Um, One, uh, uh, I think it was last last year we had uh, The Broken Rose was the opening opening night film, and Mm -hmm. uh, it was about uh, sexual trafficking of of young people and everything. So mm-hmm. you you have those tough issues that you can talk about. And um, one of the things um, that I remember Jeff Fadachi very well one of, uh, was coming out for the uh, film Restored Me. And that was mm-hmm. all about um, a film all about uh, the need for restorative justice and how people get caught up in situations, and uh, it's just we we shouldn't just throw them away in a cell someplace. Um, we should work on making sure that um, they are truly re- rehabilitated if they are in error, and if it's not a situation where they were just unjustly uh, imprisoned. And this is what makes the San Francisco Black Film Festival so significant and such a jewel because people from all walks of life, whatever race you are, whatever religion, uh, you can come in and look at the films, engage the filmmakers who are often uh, there, and talk about uh, some of those issues and everything. So it is a place mm-hmm. where if you want to expand your your thoughts about things, uh, see a different perspective, then you can do do so. The theme this year is no pigeonholes. And basically it's uh, because when you come to the San Francisco Black Film Festival, you're having an out-of-the-box out of experience, usually by some of the ideas, concepts, and insights that the, uh, the filmmakers um, bring, bring about. And there is... Um, a film about uh, I, I think about Sankofa is one of the films that uh, is going to be here this year, and with that, uh, it's looking at uh, black identity. What what do we? How do we perceive ourselves, and uh, what's the impact of it? And then you have um, you know something as serious as that to talk about, and then there is. Uh, 
the Teddy uh, Teddy Pendergrass, uh, the rise and fall and resurrection of of the soul's sexiest superstar as it's deemed. You know, so that's mm-hmm. going to be the the Fillmore Grand Theater, formerly Yoshi's. Uh, so that's oh, okay. that's going to be a great thing, and that that seems like such an uh, an appropriate thing. And and when you look at that uh, that film uh, about Teddy uh, Pendergrass, uh, it was uh, was done by Olivia Lichtenstein, and here it is. You're given an opportunity for you know women uh, women filmmakers and and that sort of thing. So you get. I, I I love it because it's it's such an egalitarian uh, um, or, uh, opportunity for people where you have something uh, serious as oh we're looking at our identity uh, through Sankofa and then um, there's a um, fun and you know uh, uh, a documentary about. Teddy Pendergrass and everything. So, and I, I think that's good for young people to know some of the some of the history and of the music and lifestyles and everything like that that people have uh, gone mm-hmm. that their some of their elders have had and experienced. So, right. people should go to sfff.org yeah. ff, and take a look at all the films that are going to be the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th. Uh, and there's no pigeonholes. It's it's an out-of-the-box experience and everything. And I hope um, that um, before it's all over that we'll have another opportunity to um, to talk to you about some of the things that are happening with the San Francisco Black Film Festival and everything. Right. So yeah. once again, uh, everybody... So, so, well, wait a second, Jackie, before um, mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of time left. And so I want you to um, maybe... Cause there's a lot to navigate. There's a lot of films. I think you mentioned you mentioned 60 films. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you um, to give some more specifics around. Um, uh, I mean, thanks for the for the theme. That's really helpful. But I noticed that there are a lot of shorts. I was wondering if there are. I know there are a lot of new filmmakers. I was wondering, um, are there any films uh, by local filmmakers? I know there's one because my friend is is featured in it, The God-Given Talent, The Creative Life of Charles Curtis Blackwell, and mm-hmm. uh, African-American disability artist, poetry, painting, creativity, educator, elderly, poet, culture, culture arts. Um, I think those are all, all um, taglines. Um, or um, and, and that's by Jeff M. Um, Gordano, and that's a feature-length Film and I think that's going to be um, screened at the African American Art and Culture Complex. So you mentioned, I think, two locations. Um, you mentioned what was formerly um, uh, the Jazz and Heritage Center um, Complex. Mm-hmm. That's a place where you're going to have screenings. The African American Art and Culture Complex is a place you're going to have screenings. You have the press conference at Cinemark. That's another location. And I was wondering. Um, where where are the films screening the majority of them and as well as are there any um again um filmmakers that are that are here in the bay or um in or women filmmakers i'm interested in both of those in your final minutes <laughs> uh, yes there are you know a number of uh female um filmmakers and everything and of course we have some local ones i don't have the specifics of the names right now so um okay. if, for 
forgive me. Uh, I I uh, I didn't curate, so um, Callie O'Ray, you know, uh, would be able to to just um, have that just come off of his, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Off his tongue very easily, but the majority of the films are going to, as you said, are going to be at the African American Arts and Cultural Center and at Yoshi's. And then um, there are some official so- selections that there there will be some locations probably that are going to be uh, announced as we go, as we're finalizing things uh, because the films just uh, were accepted just a few weeks ago and many times um we wind up having uh relationships with um certain um friends and everything and they'll say hey uh you're having an arts uh film so we'd like to to have um you um screen at our museum and that sort of thing so sometimes uh, things fluctuate so basically uh if people would go to the day they want to come Look at the films that are there, and uh, you'll see exactly where um, they are located and everything. So the best thing is to go to sfbff.org, and um, I'm sorry I didn't have uh, all of the names of the various uh, uh, women yeah. uh, documentarians and everything, but there are, there's a strong representation of women that are there. Mm-hmm. And uh, having had my opportunity uh, to uh, film, um, have one of my films there. I know um, that the film festival is really open to women and and everyone, you know, as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, um, thanks for stepping in at the last minute, uh, Jackie. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, maybe um, you could ask these questions of the. Uh, the curators, um, and then um, I could I could update the audience because I, I yeah. know um, that you know when the, the the festival, you know people really love for their films to debut with this festival because then they have an opportunity. I mean the audiences are always really receptive and encouraging, and um, yeah, it's just really wonderful um, being a part of the the festival this is a festival that's unlike all other festivals and uh and and you know that that Kali and Qatar have been able to continue it um is just really wonderful i remember when it used to be you know the juneteenth <laughs> film festival because it you know it always sort of it would it would be that fathers day weekend and then they would always be like this brunch or something and I don't know, it's just, just really just really a wonderful tradition and I'm really happy, you know, that um you know, there there are further collaborations which make the institution even that stronger, um and give it that yeah. much more bandwidth and, and visibility. Because um, I, I saw in the picture, you know, that the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, is, is all for it as well. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, she came up in this particular film festival tradition, you know, being uh, a San Francisco, uh, a San Franciscan, you know, coming up in the cultural mm-hmm. traditions that make our city what it is, even if people don't know the history, having this festival make sure that even if you don't see a lot of black people, we are there and we are the reason San Francisco is what it is, right? So that's something oh that resonates by that presence of this artistic um, institution that is still there. It's still 21 years. That's no. That's 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 significant. 
really it significant. It is significant. And when you said that, um, you know, a tradition started by Ave Montague and it's been um, mm-hmm. yeah. over to her, son, to her her Yeah, to her yeah. spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and her son and daughter-in-law is carrying it on. That is legacy. Mm-hmm. That is generational. That is something that we don't see enough of in San Francisco, where something is passed on from one generation to the next. And so for this family tie to be presenting all of these films about the African diaspora and family, it is so significant. And for you to bring that up, it's just you know, it, it warms my heart. I'm almost emotional here. But because it has so much significance, we are still here. And it's one of the uh, wonderful uh, cultural arts um, organizations. And you know how hard it is for arts organizations to survive. So, people, you can also go to sfbff.org and donate to make a difference to it. Uh, to, to have an impact moving forward, it's really hard for arts organizations. You know, three thousand dollars a month for a be- one bedroom. Um, you know, in San Francisco, those kinds of things it has an impact on the arts community as well. You know, when we think about all of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater, the African American um, Shakespeare Company, Afro Solo, and mm-hmm. all of these people that are still here making a difference and. We need our community to come out and support by attending, and we need their financial support as well. So mm-hmm. thank you for for allowing us to share about the film festival. It's a treasure. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. It certainly is. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, so we'll have to, um, you know, definitely see if um, I can get the um, – the founders on next week um, just got a text from um, uh, from Katara, but my next guest is in the studio, so I'm going to have to do this. Um, we have to do this okay. some other time. Right. So you can let her know that um, we'll reschedule, okay? Okay, will do. All right. All right. All right. You take a care. Thank much. you so much, Jackie, for, for for stepping in. I think you did a great job. <laughs> oh, you're wonderful. You're, it's because of you. You're great. You know how to interview people. Thank you, Wanda. All right. Enjoy the rest. Have a good rest of the day. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. Yeah. Uh, Good morning, Wanda Ravenel. How are you? Good morning, Wanda Sabir. How are you? (laughs) I'm fine. I'm fine. It's always always great to have a Wanda on the air. (laughs) And now you have double the trouble. So totally, um, totally, yeah. So you are joining us to talk about the annual um, Omnira Institute's presentation of, and this is their 12th annual. Wow, 12 years, huh? Where did the time go? I remember the early ones. Wow. It's the 12th annual Juneteenth uh, in Oakland, Ritual of Remembrance, First Nation and African Drumming at Lake Merritt Boathouse Picnic Area, 562 um, Bellevue Avenue in Oakland is a free event from 11 to 1, and folks can call area code 510-332-5851. And uh, what's really wonderful um, uh, about about this ritual of remembrance are the prayers, the testimony, and the ring shout. Ah, yeah. So 
um, while I look for your bio, um, tell us about about this year's um, uh, Juneteenth. So um, I just want to remind everybody of what our Juneteenth event is about. So there are lots of Juneteenth festivals. Uh, I think San Francisco, they'll have a parade um, in Texas, which is where it started. They'll probably have rodeos and barbecues and so forth. And, um, you know, I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and they don't have Juneteenth there when I was growing up. And due to, um, I think, probably um, ideas of assimilation, I hadn't even heard about how um, in Pennsylvania they used to have uh, a celebration of Freedom Day or Emancipation Day on January 1st. So uh, different states in the United States ended slavery on different days, and there used to be, um, in those states, there would be an observation of some kind. But like I said, you know, I hadn't even heard of one when, um, when I was growing up. So, um, so when I uh, realized that, uh, that an observation of some kind should be made, I was doing research and I found out that the people used to go to church in the morning um, mm. before the rodeos, the parades, the festivals, the beauty pageants and all of that, uh, and the picnics. They used to go to church in the morning and pray and give thanks that the day of Jubilee had finally come. And Jubilee was their code word, or enslaved ancestors' code word for um, the day freedom would come. So they had been praying for Jubilee for hundreds of years. And um, so when it finally came, it would make sense that they would stop and pray and give thanks that it had finally come. Now, of course, um, our ancestors back in the 1860s had no idea that um, racism would just become more sophisticated uh, over the decades and that um, um, the emotional and social uh, burden that we continue to carry from slavery, they had no idea that we would still be living with this. And um, so they were giving thanks that it was over. They didn't know it wouldn't be over. But nevertheless, what um, I think was important, what I decided was that for those ancestors who never lived to the day of Jubilee, to um, the level of um, freedom that we have now, that we should thank them. Um, for their fervent prayers and um, and remember them. I also thought that we should, um, if we could, have um, prayers in the traditions and languages that many of them had before um, before they were captured and and forced into slavery. So, um, and that's another thing that is different is that we purposely wanted to. Um, uh, be able to remember them as as people and not as slaves, um, mm-hmm. not as captives. But who were these people, and how did they think of themselves? And it was also really important, considering one of the um, narratives about slavery and why we were enslaved. It was really important to um, 
buck the issue about us being godless and uh, heathens and uh, um, savage and so forth. And so then to pray in those languages and traditions is um, is 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 to um, again uh, bring us into a wholeness. There, we were a whole people before um, our capture and enslavement. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's so true. And and I, I really like the way um, we uh, we actually um, have you know two uh, two rituals of remembrance um, on the same same day. Um, you know, uh, we uh, the um, uh, the Maava Commemoration San Francisco Bay Area is a part of the International Libations for the Ancestors, and so that same morning earlier at 9 a.m. we pour libations um, on the other side of Lake Merritt, uh, East 18th, uh, at Lakeshore Drive, and uh, we gather at 9 a.m. or a little before 9 a.m. so we can pour libations with um, organizations and people throughout the country and the world who are also pouring libations that same day at that time, um, 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 noon Eastern time, um, uh, 11 o'clock Central time, and other times uh, depending on where you are in the diaspora. And and so so that's really wonderful because um, you have actually um, poured libations with us as well, um, you know, Wanda, and it's it's really great, you know, for us all to be remembering our ancestors at that particular time because it, it's just so much power, you know, in that moment. But for those who are not able, uh, that are part of the international, um, uh, the coalition for the international, um, international coalition for the remembrance of African ancestors of the Middle Passage or ICAMP, and our website is rememberTheAncestors.com. Um, people are still um, remembering ancestors uh, that particular weekend, which is the same weekend, and also in the summer because in some places in in the country, um, uh, later on in the year, it gets really chilly and cold. So the summer months are a time when a lot of folks in the diaspora are also, you know, remembering our African ancestors. And as you said, um, you know, sort of remembering our ancestors not as enslaved people but as free people, um, which is really important. No one is born a slave. Um, that's something that, you know, they might capture your body, but they don't necessarily capture your spirit and your soul, and that's, that's indicative of the way that we remember our ancestors um, and the tradition, you know, that you all uphold um, as a part of the um, Omnira Institute um, and these programs that you put on, like, the Juneteenth, and and it's really exciting that you're actually going to be a part of the Ethnic Dance Festival 2019. Like, congratulations. Thank you. Um, it was, um, we were approached, and, and I want to say that I'm really, we're really grateful to the Ethnic Dance Festival organization itself, because they reached out to us and insisted mm-hmm. that addition I thought that we had certainly failed the audition, uh, but they were very excited about us and um, very excited about our presence. So um, I also want to make sure that people understand that we do the ring shout, but we are 
not really shouters. Um, the shouting tradition is carried on by the McIntosh County Shouters in Georgia, and they have been doing this um, cultural ritual for generations, and so they are the authentic shouters. All that we do is, I guess the best way to put this is imitate them, but um, what we found was that uh, when I when I saw the ring shout for the first time, was when I understood that African Americans, in fact, did retain something of African culture. You know, I was always taught that of all the people in the diaspora, we didn't retain anything. Cuba kept something mm-hmm. that's viable. Brazil, Jamaica, everywhere else but here. But when I saw that ring shout. I said, there it is. And I was able to recognize it because of having been to a um, a celebration after the death of my godfather, where I saw the, the movement in the, in the counterclockwise circle, um, feet close to the floor, and that, you know, it was um, uh, a sedate, uh, actually a sedate uh, uh, ritual. You know, not what we're used to with African drums or what we think we are accustomed to is that people are jumping in the air. There are a lot of hoops, you know, people are hollering and excited. And some are not like that. Some are are much more sedate. And so this one for the ancestors was sedate and and holy in its essence. And uh, and then I would find out that... um, that movement in the counterclockwise circle of the feet close to the floor. There are other parts in Af- of Africa where they do something uh, also like that. And it is generally for the ancestors, not for, say, the Orisha or for the Loa. Um, yes. So so then um, uh, the thing that, that was different with the ring shout is that there are no drums because the ring shout originated in the area of the United States where the drum had been banned after the Stono Rebellion in 1739, where Congolese men had used drums um, to call out other uh, enslaved people to rebel. So the drum had been banned in that area. It hadn't been banned, say, like in Louisiana, but in that area of of the South, the drum had been banned. So people um, used very sophisticated hand claps and tapped the floor or the ground with a, a staff and that was their percussion. And so, uh, and then they sang songs instead of singing about the, um, they couldn't directly uh, sing about the accomplishments of their ancestors, but they could syncretize it, so to speak, with um, figures from the Bible, elevated figures from the Bible. And they also used these, um, uh, the songs were a way of talking about their, their lived experience. And that's another thing that the ring shout does is that it encapsulates our, the lived experience of the, um, of the enslaved people, because so much of the information, so much of how we are taught about the impact of slavery, especially in this country, when we're taught, when we're taught that the um, civil war was not fought over slavery, but to preserve the union, then um, we have this narrative that, um, kind of cuts out um, the people who were impacted by this, you know. So, so these songs and also the other spirituals, actually, that's where we. Um, those are our time capsules. 
those are our way our way of that that was the way that our history and our experience was recorded and um and we need to continue to sing those songs and know those songs so that we connect with that experience and we don't forget it um if, but if, if we don't forget it then we remember what it is that we have to our charge into the future what that charge is that we must continually fight for our freedom that it that that is a battle that i now understand is not going to end not in this country mhm right yeah yeah and um tell our audience um when are you performing at the uh San Francisco Ethnic Dance Festival um this summer that is um and i forgot that i was going to thank ethnic dance people for inviting us um they will we perform um July 13th and 14th okay. at the Zellerbach Theater um and it's uh, a matinee 3 o'clock in the afternoon i do not know how much the tickets are um, oh, that's okay. People can go to the Ethnic Dance Festival website. <laughs> Ethnic Dance yeah. Festival website or Zellerbach Cal Performances. You can also find it. Um, okay. I'm trying to think what else I wanted to say. Oh, this is really important. Um, mm-hmm. So, theme this year is uh, I'm focusing on the fact that it's 400 years since the uh, first Africans were uh, brought to Virginia and sold for food. I'm also focusing on the fact that it's 160 years since the last slave ship um, arrived in Alabama and um, remembering... Um, yeah, the cloth uh, um, which was just found um, uh, yes. recently, like yes. last month. No, no, not last yes. month, this month. Yeah. This mm-hmm. month. And, so mm-hmm, that's the yeah. And we are... Um, Fortunate also to have uh, Rava Tuliman is, uh, you know, generally we have people come and pray. So we have someone come pray for the Ifa tradition of the Yoruba people, and um, um, someone is going to pray in the Palomonte, Palomonte tradition, which comes out of uh, the Congo, and also mm-hmm. for the Vodun tradition. But this year we're going to have something really special. Uh, Rala Tuliman, uh, they're a dance troupe, and they are going to come and give like a, not just pray, but give like a mini performance. Um, mm-hmm. So normally I give people like five minutes to um, do their prayers, uh, but I want to give them some more time so um, we can have some depth in uh, in in that prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's going to be really great. Mhm. Yeah. Ah, awesome, awesome. Um, I wanted to um I didn't get a chance to uh to share your bio with our audience, so I'm gonna read it really quickly. Um, so Wanda Ravanal, executive director, is the visionary of Omnira Institute and promoter and manager for Awan Ohun Omnira Voices of Freedom and serves as a narrator for its performances. She has been the administrator and booking agent as well as the publicist for all its activities. A former journalist who worked for 20 years in the newspaper business at the Alameda Newspaper Group, the Sacramento Bee, and the San Francisco Chronicle, she also was an activist for minority journalists, including developing and implementing a workshop for minority high school journalists. 
From 2003 to the present, um, Ravenal developed and implemented a Juneteenth ritual commemorating the Emancipation Proclamation using that included all the fates of the captives who would become slaves during the slave trade era. Beginning in 2009 to the present, Ravenal developed and implemented several lecture demonstrations drawing on the African traditional knowledge and applied it to African-American history using a choir comprised of members of an African-American church and the Lukumi community who also provided the musical framework and expertise of the sacred drum tradition known as Bata. The choir Awan Ohun Umnera, Voices of Freedom, received the 2010 Negro Spirituals Heritage Award from the Friends of Negro Spirituals, a nonprofit dedicated to the preservation of the music. In 2015, uh, through Ravenal, the Institute received a certificate of recognition from California State Assemblyman Nate Thurman. In 2014, Ravenal, with Sauda Birch, led the Institute in developing and staging the first Black Eyed Peas Festival held in Oakland's Mosswood Park. When is the Black Eyed Peas Festival this year? September 14th. And it's at, um, moved, we moved it to the lawn of the um, Oakland Technical High School. Um, mm-hmm. Much more visible, much more fun there. Right. Okay, September 14th at Oakland Tech. Okay, what time does it start? It starts at 11 in the morning and goes until 6. Um, we are very okay. excited to have um, Marcus Shelby uh, and his quintet oh. will be there. Um, Andre nice. Theory will be bringing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, nice. Mm-hmm. A young woman who does a, um, a variety of African um, traditional songs and uh, plays mm-hmm. a particular harp. Her name is P.Y. She's actually oh, yeah. yeah, she's going to perform. So that's what we have lined up so far. Uh, we're very excited mm-hmm. about that. And, of oh, course, we awesome, always close awesome. up with um, MJ's Brass Bop at the second line there. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Um, continuing uh, the bio, concerned about the impact of the deaths of young black men and women at the hands of police, Ravenel was uh, Dennis Tabaji Stewart decided to bring healing through traditional music to the surviving families. They have worked with uh, Cephas, Uncle Bobby Johnson, the uncle of Oscar Grant, who was killed by Bar Police in 2009, and uh, Felicia Jones with the Justice for Mario Woods campaign. Woods was killed by San Francisco Police in 2015. So, um, give your give your website, um, Wanda, so people can you know, stay in touch and find out what's happening so they don't miss anything? Uh, our website, website is www.amnirainstitute.org. Spell it for people? Oh, Amnira Institute. I'm oh, sorry. Amnira uh, means freedom, and it's spelled O-M as in Mary, N as in Nancy, I-R-A, Institute Common Spelling. Okay, cool, super. Thank you. Um, any um, any further comments? Um, I know we're going to be um, doing something together um, all for um, June 19th as a part of the um, Let's Talk um, 
the International Day of Drumming and Healing, which is a national initiative um, coming out of um, the um, the commission, the 400-year commission. And that's going to be at um, George Gordon Gallery, uh, 6 to 9. It's a free event. And we're going to be showing the film Sankofa, having a discussion, having drumming, prayers in African languages, and uh, and also we're going to have some art projects earlier on if people want to make a drum. I'm saving up my uh, oatmeal containers <laughs> and some other <laughs> containers that we can make some shakers. <laughs> what um, One thing that I want to encourage people to do because of what um, – the international organization suggested is that this is the 400th anniversary of the arrival of Africans um, to be enslaved. So, and we don't know what day we don't know what day it was in August, um, not exactly. And so, if I remember correctly, the international organization was saying, you know, why don't we take this Juneteenth as as that day, you know, as that commemorative day. And so what I want to encourage people to do is um, take the day off if you can, you know, make it a holy day and take the day off and remember. And then come and watch the movie Sankofa with us. With us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great idea. And there's actually going to be um, a special program at the uh, University um, Art Museum, so the Film Archive, um, hosted by, um, I'm not exactly certain, all of the people that are hosting it, but there's going to be a, there's a special uh, exhibit there now called Belonging, and, and it's featuring some of the work of uh, Mildred Howard and wonderful artists, and her um, her mother's story is, is a part of that. And so they're going to be doing something earlier in the day, so people can definitely... Um, you know, participate in that, and I'm going to make sure that I have that information in my picks as soon as I finish getting them written. <laughs> and um, and then the uh, <laughs> and um, and you know, you are what's what's your role at um, at the uh, at the Post newspaper um, group? Are you? I know you you do editing. Are you the editor? Um, what's what's your title there now? No, I I am not the editor. Um, I do okay. some editing. <laughs> Um, I really enjoy being part of that team. So, um, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not the editor. Okay. Uh, I yeah. do a lot of yeah. reading. It's just with the editing. Right. Yeah, and people can see your byline too, because um, you're you're still doing some really wonderful writing. Have you written anything special for for this particular um, Juneteenth? Because I know sometimes you write something special. Um, that you share with us. I'm going to write something this weekend for publication next week, and I wrote something mm-hmm. uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago now. Um, oh yeah, about about our ancestor um, uh, who's known as Cujo, um, found mm-hmm. one of the founders of Africa Town in in Alabama. Really wonderful. Encourage people to definitely put that on your your to do pilgrimage uh, list. Because uh, it's not it's not that far, you know, just Alabama. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, I think that's about all. Oh, the other okay. thing that I wanted to say yes. to people 
It's that um, <laughs> our ritual is a ritual. So, you know, be prepared that, you know, you might be doing some emotional work while you're there. Um, but it's really important. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. And then the next okay. week, there are lots of stuff to go to and get mm-hmm. your popcorn and your barbecue and so forth. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is a ritual, and uh, and ours is a commemoration. So, uh, yeah, but uh, June, there, there are a lot of Juneteenth um, uh, celebrations in, in the Bay Area and also in California, and there's a really wonderful website where you can look them all up just in case you want to mm-hmm. do one every every weekend. There, there are enough. I mean, Richmond has one. Berkeley has one. San Francisco has one. San Leandro maybe. Um, they have one in Vallejo. Of course, they have one in Sacramento. I mean, there are, are lots, <laughs> lots and lots, um, probably because of the, the Great Migration. Hmm? Yeah. And there's a big one in um, in in Berkeley, and don't forget that mm-hmm. the other the other one is uh, and it's the same number of years. Um, the Barbara Howard hosts a um, a Juneteenth at the end of the month in West Oakland, around 32nd in San Pablo. Oh, uh, right, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oriented. I that one. Mm-hmm. Lots of um, performances by children. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, fun. Right, yeah. So again, um I'll try to put a few of those in my uh in my picks, but like I said, um California has a Juneteenth website. We're we're that big. <laughs> so you can you can go there and um and make sure you don't miss any of them. There's one in San Jose. There are a lot of Juneteenths in California. <laughs> well thank you so much, Wanda, for taking time out of your busy schedule to bring us up to speed on what's going on. And we'll definitely have you on again to talk about the Black Eyed Pea Festival because that's in September and people might not remember. Um, <laughs> because we're we're at the end of May right now. It's like, oh, God, can you see yeah. September? Probably not. Not just yet. Um, but people can definitely yeah. see July and make sure that they get on over, you know, to Zellerbach, uh, uh Hall for the um, the debut of um, Omnira um as a part of the ethnic dance festival, that's going to be really, really super. Yes, it is. And we are really honored <laughs> to be there. Okay, thanks again, Wanda. Oh, you're welcome. You, have a good- you take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs> Peace and blessings. Oh, good morning, uh, Kanika Marshall. How are hey. you? I'm fantastic, Wanda. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Your book, Finding Os Otho, The Search for Enslaved mm-hmm. Williams Ancestors, um, is so, so wonderful. I was just like, like I knew I couldn't read it all in, you know, one night, but I was just sort of looking <laughs> through it and reading sections and looking at the pictures, and I watched all 16 of your videos. See, you are a really oh, good yeah. filmmaker. They are. I mean, like, yeah, because I thought I watched it like one or two. And before I knew it, I was up to like 10. I'm like, well, shoot, why not watch them all? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for for having me on to be able to speak about this this book and trying to get other African-Americans to write our family stories. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you are a part of the um, Sacramento um, Black Book Festival, right? Are you are you a part yes, of ma'am. the reception tonight or and and tomorrow as well? Tell us where you are in the festival because we want to make sure that people know, you know, what time and where so that they can make sure they catch your okay uh, your presentation. Well, I will be on uh, tomorrow, June first, at noon at Underground Books, which is in uh, the Oak Park area of Sacramento. And so I'll be with two other authors, and we'll be talking about our books and trying to encourage other people to do the same. But, yes, there is a nice, uh, huge presentation this evening, uh, May 31st, at the Guild Theater. and There will be several uh, speakers that will be talking there. But, but I'll be on noon, Saturday, at Underground Books. There are lots of events going on. <laughs> right, yeah. And and um on your website, uh dot com and Kanika spelled K A N I K A and then Marshall M A R S H A L L. Um, you write that um your your goal is to share the strength and majesty of ancient cultures via beautiful spiritual sculptures and clay pottery that you hand yeah. sculpt in your private studio near Sacramento, uh, California. And uh, so you are you are a visual artist as well as a writer, and um, <laughs> and um, you um, uh, you've gotten a lot of um, awards for for your writing. Uh, you got second place award at the 26th annual Northern California Publishers and Authors Book Awards competition. I mean that's recent because this is 2019. That, and that um, amazing. Mhm. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So in trying to uh yes, I've been an artist for all my life. My mother was an artist, so I grew up in the home of an mm-hmm. artist and that's wonderful and I do have an actual business for oh gosh, what 26 years now, Kanika African Sculptures. Mm-hmm. But when I turned 60, I started my 60th year of life, I started getting scared. <laughs> that all this interest I've had in family history is just going to go down the tubes if, I hate to say it, but if I pass away tomorrow, it'll be gone. So that's what started me to write the books about the family. And so mm-hmm. I am really happy to now be an author and an artist. It is it is uh, great, but mainly just getting their stories out there in the Library of Congress, getting the books in um, public libraries in Maryland where my enslaved family uh, lived and and in Sacramento and other places. That's what I'm really hoping to encourage other people to do too, and and that's uh, what I tried to do with this second book, Finding Oto: The Search for Our, Our Enslaved Williams Ancestors, is help other people do the same thing. So this kind of you, I hope you well, I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but but I meant to write mm-hmm. it as a conversational book, so like mm-hmm. you and I are are talking now about how to do family history. And so it's written from that point of view. It's it's not a, it mm-hmm. is a research book, and it does have a ton of pictures, like you said. But there's also a chapter in there called "Solving Your Mystery," which is a bunch of hints and tips on how I exactly did this, how I did the research, how I wrote the book, how I self-published it, and they're just one-liner hints and tips, so that hopefully other people will do the same and get our stories out there in the world. Um, instead of just the two pages on slavery in the history books that children see. We've got to have our stories, our families. 
just what happened to our families, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was right. trying to yeah. do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, glad you yeah, I really like that. Really fun. Right. Yeah, and I really, I really like the section um, in the back, um, you know, that sort of looks at um, just sort of your your research process and um, and and uh, you know how you um, and I was thinking about all of my my older relatives who are no longer here that I I can't get there you know, get them to do the uh, the DNA test. And you talk about how, you know, it's kind of, it's it's not easy to um, to get your, you know, your history via the DNA. And, and it's really costly, too. And and um, I like that how you you would ask people, instead of giving you a present, <laughs> mm-hmm. then just, you know, get, your, get, you know, put that money into, you know, a particular a DNA test. And um, so, you know, the second part, well, the part four, DNA doesn't lie, does it? That's mm-hmm. a really wonderful section. But the way you lay the book out, you know, you have your foreword, uh, you have the introduction, the preface, um, you know, the tackling the puzzle, part one, which has becoming a, a genealogist, introducing Otho Williams, your ancestor that had been enslaved, breaking down the 1870 brick wall, and then you have part two, period of bondage, 1664 to 1865, um, you know, you have um, chapter 4 through 11 there, and then you have part 3, what freedom brings, um, Yeah, and that's chapter 12 through 16, um, and, and then again, part 4, DNA doesn't lie. And yeah, it, it, it is, it's, it's uh, easy to, um, to become, you know, like a part of the journey with you, the way you write it is yeah. so, um, so inviting yeah. and so engaging um and so i was wondering maybe um and and i i've read so much around about you you know that um you know that you um um it says uh on the back of the book you know that um uh you know that you're a professional um researcher and an analyst mm-hmm. and technical writer and you work for the California Highway Patrol for 36 years and mm-hmm. uh <laughs> and then um and you've been exploring your family roots for four decades, so it's like, whoa, this takes a minute. <laughs> it takes and a and minute. then, yeah, and then I remember um, reading how you know you had this this manuscript, which included stories from your your the elders in the family, and and some are now ancestors. And so I don't remember who suggested that you take that out, but not but your other work that that particular section of would have been this book is called The Ancestors Are Smiling. And I remember reading somewhere, because I've been skipping around in the book, that one of the elders, um, I think he's an ancestor now, who you did get his mm-hmm. DNA, um, mm. uh, his daughter was reading the stories from The Ancestors Smiling to him as he was making his transition. I'm like, whoa, that's so cool. Um, well, and, and these, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh no no! I was just to say that, but that that is the number one reason why I finally mm-hmm. kicked myself in the you know what, and said I've got to write this stuff down because we did. Uncle Charles Williams, great Uncle Charles Williams, was ninety two or so years old when I started mm-hmm. writing these books in two thousand sixteen, and uh, this was my third goal: is to find out well what happens to the descendants of a slave. 
right? I, the first goal was to find the parents of my great-great-grandfather, Oso Williams. The second goal was to find the slave master because I didn't know who that was. But the third goal mm-hmm. was to look at what happens to the families when you come from slavery. And let's face facts, 80 to 90 percent of us in this country come from slaves. That's just how it is. And that's what this book is. It, the, the, my work became so big, I had to split this out to a separate book called The Ancestors Are Smiling. And at the last minute, right before I had to publish this book, I finally was able to talk with, personally, great-uncle Charles Williams, who had been very ill. But I got the chance to talk to him for two and a half hours to find his remarkable mm. story. Oh, my gosh. He was uh, one of the first, if not the first, machinist made in the Navy and on and on. But the bottom line is, is I got the book published, and his wife, Margaret, was able to read the book to him three times before he passed. So he went mm. out of this world knowing that his life story would go on. That's what it's all about, folks. To try, So that's why I'm, I'm still trying to encourage people to do the same thing now with their families, even if they just get a few stories. Publish them, put them in the Library of Congress, get them in those public libraries, tell your family, you know, let them uh, have the book so that the stories can be read to their grandchildren. So, yes, that, that is so key. Uh, uh, Great Uncle Charles Williams, who's on the front of that book, The Ancestors Are Smiling, um, and both <laughs> of them, of course, are, you know, on Amazon and stuff. But, but, but you're right, that, that was so special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Tell us about, you know, you mentioned um, uh, you wondered, people would say um, that, you know, you had to be mixed race, right? You was like, no, no I'm there's, black. No, I'm not. Right. I'm black. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is I'm so black. funny. You, you know, know, you don't get raised like, in the 60s and 70s without understanding black is beautiful. And if the mirror does not reflect that beautiful chocolate brown complexion, then sometimes you can have a big complex. So, yeah, and it, that that was true. Um, people did constantly say, are you mixed? No, I'm black. Anyway, so so back when I started work at the Highway Patrol in 1976, an African-American coworker who was much lighter than I was, but I knew she was black, um, she asked me, well, who are the white people in your family? I don't have any white people in my family, but I really didn't know. And so that's when I wrote letters to my grandmothers asking them, what is our family heritage? What, where do we come from? Because I really didn't know. We lived in California. Everybody else lived in Ohio. And I just didn't know. And so that was the start. And that's why the recommendation is that if you have elders who are still, like you were saying about yours, if if you have elders who are still alive, contact them, call them, go visit them, and definitely tape record them, videotape them, and then write their stories and publish those stories. Get them out there into the American historical record um, in writing. It's really important to try to do that. And like you said, DNA, for those of us, uh, you know, the majority of us came from slaves. Our families were all sold away from each other in many cases. DNA is sometimes the only way you're going to be able to piece together who your family is, where they came from. So getting DNA tests for your elders, especially right now, is very important. 
Um, and I know there are issues or surprises that come up with DNA, but like you pointed out, I have four chapters in this book, Finding Otho, that talk about DNA and how to use it. You know, what is it? What test should you buy? How do you find your European ancestors? And in my case, chapter 20 is the best chapter. It is the, it's what I've always wanted. You've heard of Roots, right? Alex Haley's right. Roots. Came out in 1977, Kunta Kinte. I want my Kunta Kinte moment, and that is Chapter 20, How I Use DNA to Find My African Ancestors. I don't mean what percentage comes from Cameroon. I don't care about I want a name of a real person who's alive today whose family comes from Africa, and, and, and I can talk to them, and they will tell me exactly which village, which family name, so I can go visit. The fam, my family, my blood family, that's what I want. That's what chapter 20 is. It tells how I finally, after all these decades, found my African roots. And it's, it was just so exciting. And, and girl, it, it barely, it almost didn't happen. I almost didn't find them. <laughs> but at the mm-hmm. last minute, it, it did work out. And so that's, again, why I say this is, this is a, a, it's a, it's a guidebook on how other people can do it. It's not the only way to write a book about your African history or your family. It isn't, but it is a way that worked for me and some of the hints and tips might help you. And if you're looking for the actual African ancestors that you have or European or Asian, we know whatever your ancestors or the native American that we all Mm -hmm. have, right? Did you have the story, Wanda, from your family that you have Native American in your family? Mm-hmm. A lot of black yeah, folks. Yeah, yeah, great, <laughs> yeah, great, uh, great. Um, let's see, great grandmother. However, when I I got my my DNA done, I have like three different versions of it, uh-huh. and um, uh, African ancestry, ancestry, and um, through through the college where I work, uh, through the. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, one of our uh, anthropologists, he would do, um, this would be a part of his um, freshman uh, class. He would always, you know, talk about um, our our ancestry and uh-huh. the DNA test would be a part of that. And so he would do it for the community and make it really Excellent. affordable. It wouldn't be as expensive as it is now, even, you know, though they do have mm-hmm. good deals during the holidays, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but, yeah, I was I was surprised that I, I didn't have Native American. But then you explain what happens with mm-hmm. regards to um, how you need to have a lot of people um, tested um, in, yeah. in your in your immediate family because um, – the 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 genes that are passed on is is random and I like that mm-hmm. is really well done the way you talk about that in your book you. it's really Thank well you. explained you explain the science of of this process very well not just there but others with illustrations for those that are visual learners mm-hmm. it's like nice yeah. nice yeah absolutely so that, yeah, that's nice. the point I want it to actually matter I want people to really understand it so that they will feel comfortable about doing it. And, you know, the mm-hmm. DNA, really, it's, it's about the only way, unless you have elders that you've interviewed that know your family history, like Kunta Kinte, the stories came down from Mother Africa. Each generation told the next generation the stories of, you know, the, the Gambia River and all that stuff. Most of us don't have that. <laughs> Most of us mm-hmm. don't have elders that, number one, <clears throat> are alive, or if they are alive, they don't want to talk because stuff happened in the past that we don't want to remember. 
And so a lot of times DNA is the only way we can find out who our ancestors were. And I wanted to uh, be able to, I'm a newbie still, even though I've been doing it for 40 years, I did it wrong for 40 years. And only the last three years have I been paying attention to the gurus. Folks, if you don't know, on Facebook, there are lots of African-American genealogy groups with experts that know what they're talking about. They're like in blog talk radio, like your 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 system, Wanda. There's Bernice Bennett every mm-hmm. Thursday night, 6 p.m. Pacific time. There's Black Pro Gen Live, another talk show with black or, or African-American experts that can help you. And once I finally started listening to what they were saying, and in the book mm-hmm. I talk about the importance of actually reading the census, every single column, because you learn a lot about your family from these documents. And so, but these, these Facebook experts, um, you can join. These are free, free experts that will help you do your own, uh, your, at, least, at least know where to look, know what to research. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what I've tried to do is, is put that information in here. Those sources are in that chapter, that finding uh, or solving your mystery chapter a lot of different resources that are free that you could look at are there, as well as, you know, the DNA testing and, and the idea, like you said, hey, for Christmas, if you, if you practice Christmas, instead of giving me a present, go ahead and have yourself DNA tested and let me have your results <laughs> so, that, so that we can put it all together and find our relatives, our blood relatives. So mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. all important. It all works. And then also, maps throw out a plug? There is Mm -hmm. an African-American genealogy institute called MAGI, the Midwest African-American Genealogy Institute, and they it's a genealogy uh, conference, or or it's it's not even a conference, it's a class. It's a set of classes for three days in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mm -hmm. It's happening in July, and so it's M-A-A-G-I, MAGI, and it is really excellent if you want one-on-one help. It's not the normal... Um, convention where you just sit and you listen to somebody lecture on how to do your genealogy. They're act, we're actually participating. We're actually writing. We're actually doing our genealogy mm. in that convention. This is my, my first time going, but it just oh, sounds like it's nice. really great. And mm-hmm. um, and so there are lots of tools available. Many of them are free. Um, again, in this book, it's it's kind of a step by step one liners all the way through, of things you could try, things that did not work for me, but I put them in the book anyway because they might work for you. And that's the whole thing is just, you know, there's a lot in that book for sure. But I wanted to show people these are the things that I tried. Some worked, some didn't. But, you know, give them a right. shot. Yeah, yeah, you're, um, you know, um, is it Emily uh, Amt, um, mm-hmm. who is mm-hmm. – um, yeah, she's um Department of History at Hood College and um I think you you reached out to her. Um yeah. yeah, she talked about the great questions that you ask and how much you had already found, you know, when when you met uh her mm-hmm. and then and then the wonderful time you had when you, you know, you did that that uh, ancestral tour in Maryland um 2 years ago. And um mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could maybe share something um, from the book. Um, 
I didn't read Chapter 7, Does Prince Charming Exist, or Chapter 9, A Day in the Life. But I was wondering if you could share something. And then also, um, before you do that, you um, I did read the section where um, you and your, your mom, your mom, uh, was your mom a, a principal? I know she was an educator. Uh-huh. She, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She was a principal. And your dad, your dad is a physician. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and you're the yeah, eldest it, of three. Yes. Yes. So what I wanted to do is stretch my wings from being, I was a technical writer, as you mentioned, for 36 years for the Highway Patrol, but I wanted to write something. I wanted to write a novel. I wanted to write something that people (laughs) would be excited to read, but I wanted the research. I wanted it to be done on facts. So yes, that chapter nine, A Day in the Life, is my Mm -hmm. attempt to try to make uh, all these facts and figures come out being interesting and if mm-hmm. it's okay, yeah, I would like to read like a paragraph. Oh, sure. Oh, that, can, that, yeah. So it's yeah, a day in fine. life. Yeah, that's fine. But before so you, you do ahead. that, um, I uh, I also um, uh, wanted to mention that you know in in that that journey on the train that you and uh, your mom and your your siblings went to visit. I think Ohio, right, to visit your relatives yeah. where where, where yeah, your mother's yeah. from, and. Uh, yeah. And I just love it, you know, that you didn't know what what uh, fireflies were, and it just sounded like really beautiful. But then, um, you mentioned uh, in that chapter about the um, the elders told, I guess your cousin, um, or, but but you but you call her auntie, um, yes. to 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 do a, um, you know, that you, your family need to have a family reunion, and and yes. so your research is on your major lineal line. But of course, you know, you mentioned how your dad. You know he's responsible for you being here, so of course he's a part of the journey. Um, and uh, and yeah, and then all of her work, like you know, she went and talked to the elders in the family, and then she she put together these tablets with colored tabs to let people know like where they are in the tapestry that is your family. I'm like, whoa! She was like modeling for you in advance what you would be doing now. I just thought that was so cool. She she was amazing in the 1980s before computers. Um, she's my first cousin once removed, but it's really easier mm-hmm. to say Aunt Lavada. And so, mm-hmm. yes, so the, the ancestors sat her down in 1982, and they said to her, now, Lavada, these children <laughs> running around here not knowing that they're related, and you know what can happen with that. And that did happen <laughs> sometimes in that if you don't know you're related to each other and you hook up, you know, stuff can happen. And so that's why they said she, they chose her. And back then you did what the ancestors, you know, what the elders told you to do. You didn't question it. Mm -hmm. And so she did. Mm -hmm. And she spent just a few months in gathering together all this information. After she interviewed all those elders, she corroborated their stories of our lineage with census records and other records at the state archives. She put it all together. She typed it up on an old typewriter because that's what we had back in the day. And as you said, she put together this wonderful 22-page book listing all the generations, all the families, color-coded. She is phenomenal. And, this, and yes, she did. She was my, my, my model. And she actually took me with her on some of her research uh, gatherings back in 83 when we went back for the reunion, family reunion in Ohio. Um, but the thing is, is she couldn't really research her own Williams family because there was a slave issue. 
And back then, there's no way you could find out about slaves, you know, the slave owner and all that, if your family didn't tell you. And nobody wanted to talk about it. And that's why I chose to do my research on her enslaved family line, Otho Williams, is Lavada's great-grandfather. And he's my great-great-grandfather. But she was the model, absolutely. And that's why I give her all praise for being able to do what she did. And I, in fact, she's the one because she was going to visit me in June 2016. And for 40 years, I've been interviewing her, calling her, visiting her and her mother (laughs) who lived to be 107 years of age. And I had nothing to show her for. And that's why I panicked. I said, I can't have this wonderful woman come to stay with me for two weeks and not be able to show her what I've done with all the information for 40 years. And so that's when I really got my behind in gear and started putting together the genealogy binders, started to take classes, started to learn how to do these books, and then started to do the books. So, yeah. (laughs) Okay, now you can share from Chapter 9, A Day in the Life. <laughs> you want 9 or do you want Chapter 2, Introducing Otho Williams? So that's oh, kind of I fun. Don't know. I thought you, I, hmm. Yeah, the, the whole book is fun. <laughs> well, Chapter 9, A Day in um, the Life, is, is after I got, did as much research as I could to find out, well, what did slaves do in Washington County, Maryland, where my family came from? What was their life like? Um, and it, anyway, so, so here's, here's my take on it. So I'm going to talk about, um, different slave names of my ancestors. These are my ancestors and what I think their lives might've been like. Okay. So, um, mm-hmm. I'll just start. Mary yelled an agitated female voice from somewhere upstairs. Yes, Miss Sarah, I coming up. Her blue and white gingham apron flapped against the baluster as she rushed up the polished wooden stairs, holding a tall glass of freshly made apple juice. She hurried to deliver the beverage to her mistress, who was waiting in her bedroom at the end of the second-floor hallway in the sprawling, brown-shingled Ingram farmhouse. Now, Mary, how many times do I have to tell you to have my juice on the bedstand before I wake up? Sarah Ellen affectionately chided her 20-year-old slave girl on that chilly March morning in 1840. I'm sorry, Miss Sarah. Rooster didn't crow this morning, so I woke up a mite late. I dressed as quick as lightning and ran to the big house fast as I can. Anyway, that's an example of how I was trying to stretch my wings and write something. And it and and what is included in that chapter. Is information I found in the estate records of the slave owners. So I I know how many cows and horses they had. I know I know what the house looks like. Um, Mm -hmm. When you talked about Doctor Ahms, who wrote the foreword, she and several other people who lived in Maryland bent over backwards to take me wherever I wanted to go to see where my family lived and worked. They were fabulous. And so this book, to the greatest degree possible, is written from information I actually found that I simply made into a story. Instead of just reading pages and pages of listings of, you know, horses and cows and how many slaves, because, again, we we were listed as property, we black people were listed as property. 
We were not listed with our names. We were only listed by age and sex. Hmm. In between the cows and the plows on the master's property list. And trust me, emotionally, it is devastating when you start reading that, that we really were Mm -hmm. the same as a cow and the same as a fork and the same as a dresser drawer. It, It was shocking. But I took that information and tried to make it into a story to give myself and others an idea of how our family likely lived. And I have also... Many uh, purchased many books from other authors who've done the same thing I wanted to do, history books. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some people like, oh, the slave narratives. Have you ever looked at the slave narratives or listened to the slave narratives at all? Oh, yeah, I actually collect them. I have a large slave oh, narrative oh. library. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you – so slave narratives – And some of those are um, actually – yeah, some of them are all also um, available um, free through the Library of, of Congress. Yes, you ma'am. can go to a website there, and you can did like hundreds. It's beautiful. Yes, ma'am. And so that's what I did is I looked at the slave narratives from where my family lived so I could get oh. an idea of take that data, you know, the, the, the actual property records from the slave masters, mm-hmm. and, and I could look at the narratives of people who live where my folks lived and start pulling together that way these stories. Because I wanted it to really be as as possible or plausible as it could be when I was writing. But I can I can read this type of a story to my grandkids and they'll understand it. Oh, okay. Instead of just a long list of property, they'll understand the story. So wherever possible, I tried to populate this book with actual stories and and as you said pictures and things like that so it's uh, the visual learners the auditory learners the mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it's really great you know that you make these um uh these characters real because you know if you have a a person that's listed along with the uh the stock then that's not a person mm. but the mm-hmm. way that you uh, take that person off of that list <laughs> and say, no, this is a human being. This is my relative, in fact, and mm-hmm. and and give this mm-hmm. person, um, you know, a, a life, you know, in 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 yeah. the story that you're telling. It it really adds a lot of meaning um, and tangible meaning to to this particular uh, journey that you're taking us on. And um, I wanted to mention, like on page one thirty. Um, you know when you continue with the story, and um, and you, you talk about the uh, enslaved matron of the house, forty-four-year-old Margaret and her eleven-year-old daughter, Margaret Elizabeth, and then you give us the names of the other members of the household, um, and and the owner, um, um, J- John Ingram, uh, and uh, and and but then on the other page, you know, you talk about. Um, uh, uh, Ortho's um, brother, I guess his big brother, Hezekiah, and then you talk mm-hmm. about the five-year-old Ortho, what he's up to. You know, everyone's working. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is kind of cute. Um, I was wondering, can you share a little bit more, if, if you have time, from, from this particular chapter? Sure. So 
Margaret was the mother, my third great-grandmother. I shouldn't tell that in advance, but um, Margaret called to her eight-year-old son, who was playing outside, neglecting his daily chores. Hezekiah, where's that milk? Margaret Elizabeth might need to churn more butter before breakfast. Okay, I'm going to get some right now, Mama, he said over his shoulder, and skipped toward the 20-foot-wide by 30-foot-long cow barn, which stood at the far end of the gravel path about 200 yards from the big house. The pig pen, chicken coop, and barn were built as far away as possible from the main living quarters, so putrid manure smells would not offend the sensibilities of the ladies or other visitors. Otho's brother Hezekiah was usually responsible for milking the cows in the early morning and late afternoon. He only had time to milk one right now. He would do the rest after breakfast. Grabbing a warm teat with each hand, he squirted the milk into a large metal jug. The milking complete, he called to his brother Henry to help him load the heavy jug into the small red wagon and pull it along the pathway to the kitchen door. It had rained hard the previous night, turning the thinly graveled path into a muddy, rutted mess. It took the two of them to haul the wagon over the rut. Five-year-old Otho, the subject of this book, was playing with sticks in the mud instead of doing his chores. Exasperated, Margaret yelled, Also, fill this basket with eggs right now, and be careful not to break them this time. Taking the straw basket that could hold about 24 large speckled brown eggs, Otho headed to the chicken coop. He enjoyed reaching under the warm brown feathers to find the oval treasures. They would become sunny-side-up eggs for the Ingrams and scrambled eggs for the Williamses. He scattered chicken scratch for the hens, adding water to some of the cracked corn and other grains mixture to make their favorite mash. Otho did not look forward to cleaning the nesting area later that day, but it was important to keep their coop clean. So, <laughs> Yeah, again. I and love hearing you read. Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, uh, no. I was just saying I love hearing you read. It's just so wonderful. So is this book, is this also a book on tape, too, that we people could get it in that format? Oh, I really want to do that. Absolutely, I am looking into doing that. I want to do an e-book first, mm-hmm. and then I mm-hmm. really do want to do this as an audio book. Um, yeah. I'm not sure because some of it, because of some of the, the research part of it, I don't know how well that would do. So mm-hmm. I know for sure the first book, Anse- The Ancestors Are Smiling, would lend itself really well to an audio book. And the third mm-hmm. one, the one I'm working on now, would also be good. But, um, mm-hmm. but maybe some snippets. And as you heard mm-hmm. on some of the videos I have on my YouTube channel, the uh, Kanika Marshall or Kanika AS uh, YouTube channel, some of those videos, I, I, I have read some of these stories in there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But it was again yeah. just What's to bring, I remember oh go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, finish and then I can ask the next question. Go ahead. I was just gonna say I am a member of three writing groups. One of them is called Black oh. Women Write and we meet at the oh. Underground Bookstore once a month. And it was there mm-hmm. that Stephanie Bray, the lady who is uh, uh the moderator of that group, gave us an mm-hmm. exercise that changed my way of writing. And she told us mm-hmm. to write six quirky things about our characters, our main characters. I had mm-hmm. no idea what I had no idea what they looked like, but I didn't know anything about them. 
So, but that caught, that charged me or, 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 or got me to thinking about, well, what did they look like? What did Otho look like? What did Patsy and Margaret mm-hmm. and all these other of my relatives look like? And that's how I could write this book after piecing together what they probably look like. Mm, nice, nice. And you mentioned that you're working on, um, you said, I think you said a third book. Is it sh- Yes. What, what is that book? So the third book is Finding Daisy from the Deep South to the mm. Promised Land. And that is my mm. paternal grandmother, Daisy Dooley mm. Marshall Shoemake, who told everybody that she was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and she spent about 60-some-odd years of her life in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I was born. So Cleveland mm-hmm. being the promised land. But I found out after not being able to find Grandma Daisy anywhere in the records mm-hmm. in St. Louis, except one time, 1920, she was there in the 1920 census, a lady who is a, a relative of mine, D. Darlene Dooley, who's an expert genealogist, mm-hmm. told me, your grandma wasn't born in, in St. Louis. She was born in the Deep South. And so that mm. became the mystery of the story. Where did she come <laughs> from exactly? Why did she not say she was from the Deep South? And just what was that story? And so uh, this is a, definitely a, just a novel based on all facts. Oh. It's a literary nonfiction. And, it's, and I just came back from the Deep South in, in April. <laughs> I spent two weeks. And plantations, all kind of mm-hmm. stuff that I found that I that, that Grandma Daisy didn't tell us nothing about. So <laughs> that's the story, that's the mystery, and she did amazing things in Cleveland. So um, mm. I'm really excited about that. That will be published. Did you hear the word "will be" published mm-hmm. this year? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I gotta oh, get wow, some just so girl. When you get get silver hair like I have. They, the 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 books have to be published. If it's not published, then mm-hmm. anything that's in my head doesn't count because if I'm you know something happens to me tomorrow, it's all gone. So it has to be published, and that's mm-hmm. what again I'm hoping to encourage people to do: write them in a book, make copies. Give them to your family. Put them in the Library of Congress. Put them in the you know mm-hmm. public libraries. Get those right. stories out there because it don't do no good if it's in your head and you're dead. Not to be mm-hmm. morbid, mm-hmm. but <laughs> yeah. So this is um this is on your your father's side. This is your yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is your father's mother. She's, yes. So she's one of the two that I wrote a letter to in 1976 asking about oh. our lineage. Of course, yeah. she said, well, my grandmother's one-quarter Native American, Blackfoot Native American. Mm-hmm. And so all those years, okay. I'm thinking, but that ain't true because Black, Blackfoot Indians are in Canada. <laughs> you know, there's in, in the, yeah. So, so, but the DNA did give me a little touch of Native American, so... Based on what mm-hmm. I have found, it is a possibility in the Deep South. It is a possibility, and I'm and I'm looking very diligently into that. Mm-hmm. So it's the yeah. yeah, the research is exciting. Oh. And go ahead. Oh, okay. Because I was wondering, because you mentioned Blackfoot, and I was wondering where, how you happened to choose that particular uh, indigenous nation. I'm like, oh, so now I understand why you said Blackfoot. Because of this letter, 
um, right that uh-huh. was your, yep. yeah he said, okay he said we came from Blackfoot Indian well a lot of of, of African Americans are told that story because they're black their feet were black and so <laughs> a lot of times because people don't want to say that no it's Caucasians no it was the slave master doing his thing in the slave quarters at night that caused this skin mm-hmm. color. People don't want to think about that. So mm-hmm. it's more nowadays more popular to say you come from Native American Indians because they were so badly treated that we now become the underdog if we come from Native American. I think that's the thought process that a lot of black mm-hmm. parents would say instead of, well, no, we were raped by the slave master. It, that's hard. That's you know, nobody wants to go around talking about that. And it's, mm-hmm. and so I, I, and it's not just me that thinks this. It's a lot of, uh, I, I'm simply, you know, what are these, these genealogy experts out there that are my, my mentors? Um, because when you do the DNA and if it comes out that you don't have any Native American, it, it's not necessarily that you don't because mm-hmm. the percentage may be so small that it's simply not measurable. It could be that you right. do have Native American ancestry, even though DNA says you don't. But like you mentioned earlier, get a bunch of your family tested, and one of them may pop up with a touch of it. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, but, but in my case, it's most, well, it's assured that it's mo- mostly the Europeans who have intermingled with the African blood. Mm-hmm. Not not so much the Native Americans who intermingled with the African blood in my case. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. 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 I was thinking um, about you know in your um, uh, from your YouTube channel when you're talk when you're sharing with us you know sort of going to that uh, to the land you know touching the land you know that your yeah. family stepped on and and then the land mm-hmm. that. Uh, your great great grandfather owned, and I'm like, and then and then, yeah, and I'm like, wow, that is so. I can't even imagine, you know, sort of how that feels. Well, actually, yes, I can because um, I've done the same thing, you know, in my um, okay. ancestral grounds, um, you know, particularly the burial grounds, like the cemetery that's still in the family, um, but yeah. also NASA, where they took our land, uh, just being, mm-hmm. you know, at NASA. Um, in Mississippi, it's like, yeah, well, you know, this might have, this particular area is where my people were before they took it. <laughs> um, but I was just wondering if you could talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit, uh, and, and then also um, when when you learned of where your ancestors are from in Africa, like how that was, and and how did oh the your, your ancestors that claimed you after such a long time being apart mm. from them. Mm. So the first one with the land, I had no idea that my family owned land. I had no idea mm. that my family owned land as early as 1843. I think that, no, mm-hmm. 42, 1842. I couldn't believe it. And I, um, Jane, uh, uh, a woman named Jane, who was in charge of the or, or works for the C&O Canal Company in Washington County, Maryland, took a week off from her job to show me around wherever I wanted to go. But more than that, Jane, she visited all the places 
that I had finally found, you know, where my family lived. And she contacted the current owners of those properties and got approval for me to come and visit those properties. She did all that in advance for me. Mm-hmm. And it was just incredible. So when I went to actually, one one uh, homeowner who owns the property that was the 1842, purchased in 1842, which is now five homes on that lot, she says, well, yep, she can come, but she has to give my my homeschooled children a history lesson in exchange. So I was able to talk to these white children who now live on the property that my African-American ancestor uh, had purchased in 1842 and tell them all about what I found, my family, who lived here, what they did. It was incredible. And then um, Mm. my great-great-grandfather, Otho Williams, when I found that he actually had purchased property also after slavery, was over and I was able to go and literally kiss the ground the five acres uh, that he initially purchased was it was just amazing standing on slave rock the place where all slaves were sold between 1800 and 1865 Hmm. was incredible and then as I'm standing on the slave rock a white woman drives by and says are you for sale what? That's in what? 2017. In 2017. What? Really? So one of the slave rocks, oh, there were two in the county. One of them is now in the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. The other one still is there in Hagerstown, well, Sharpsburg, sorry. It's in an old gas station lot, still there. With a plaque mm-hmm. on it, and so I have all those pictures in the book and in my YouTube. That is emotional. That was incredibly emotional, and Jane was just so embarrassed that this, you know, that you know, it just <laughs> there's still folks out there that would love us to still be slaves. Um, but anyway, mm-hmm. so so yes, the emotional impact is 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 hard to believe. And then the chapter twenty, finding my mm-hmm. African ancestors. Um, I tried and tried and tried and tried and couldn't find anything. And I had to publish, I had to get my manuscript to the copy editor. And it wasn't until the last minute where finally somebody responded to my inquiry. Uh, With DNA, you get a listing. This is the gold of getting a DNA test. It has nothing to do with what percentage comes from Cameroon or what that means. Nothing. Those are estimates. And they change the the companies change their estimates when they have more information. To me, that is worthless. But what is gold is that they will give you the DNA companies will give you a list of people who match your DNA. That means they are related to you. And there are many thousands of people that pop up on the list. You have to simply contact them and find out how you are related. Okay, and that's hard. But that's what I did. And so I reached out to many people who I knew were related to me through DNA to try to talk with them. One woman, finally, after I actually found uh, where her father had come in from Nigeria as a student in, 19, in the 1970s, and there was an address for her father, who I'm assuming was her father, mm-hmm. and there was an mm-hmm. address. And I took a chance and sent a letter to the address that was from 2002, but I thought, well, maybe someone's still living there. And she got the letter. She responded to me. And this was, 
you know, right as I was going to have to send this manuscript on, she responded to me and told me these amazing stories about her African family who's related to me by DNA. Mm -hmm. I know that. And I now know where exactly I can go and visit. And so I have all that information in Chapter 20 of the book, how I found her, exactly what I did, what I tried, how I tried to find a bunch of other folks from Liberia and you know, lots of other uh, uh, places said that, that I had DNA that came from there. But she contacted me back. And so I can now visit. I now know, you know, the Igbo tribe, and I now know which villages <laughs> specifically I can visit. And, I can, and she, can, she will be happy to, make, to, to contact the relatives there and welcome me with open arms. Now, I haven't done that yet, but that's mm-hmm. something that I have always longed to do since 1977 when Roots came out, and I can do that now, and it's because of DNA. There's no way I could have found that information without DNA testing. So if, mm-hmm. if people listening get any one thing out of this, it's get yourselves tested. Now, ethically, I need to tell you in advance, there were things that our ancestors had to do to survive. So the DNA may come back with some of them skeletons in the closet that they didn't want to tell us about. You just have to understand there may be things that the DNA shows you that you didn't know about. Uh, Like a lot of white people, excuse me, some white people get their DNA results back and they're sub-Saharan African in their results because Mm -hmm. there was some black person that passed. They started passing for white and they had no idea. And I've come. I've I've talked to many of those folks. They had no idea that their ancestors were black. Mm-hmm. So there are surprises that could come up. But the gold. Don't be scared. It's fact. It's past. You are who you are now, and the DNA is simply going to help you find what your history is. And it's it's a wonderful tool. But you just have to be prepared that. You know, there may be things that come out that you're not expecting. And for, um, I wrote this book. This book can be used by people who are adopted that don't know their parents. And for them, mm-hmm. DNA is the almost the only way they're going to be able to find their families because most adoptions are closed adoptions. But, uh, and, and I know my brother-in-law, he found a brother and two sisters he didn't know that he had through DNA testing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's fabulous. They now go around the around the country to the spots where their families came from. And I'm so happy for him. He's 70-something years old and now knows mm-hmm. that he's got a whole other family that they can pal around with and love on each other. And it's because of DNA that he was able to find that. Yeah. So, so with regards to your brother-in-law, how, how did they show up um, in the um, – uh, the leaves that come, you know, that they are part of Ancestry.com or, I mean, like, or you know, how they show us, show you, like, okay, this particular person is connected to you and they have, like, the different ratings, like, how close. Well, when you, how, when, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they, they showed up as siblings. Oh, half they showed up as siblings. Oh, half that's half what it said. Yep. Oh, that's mm-hmm. cool. And when That's this is the really beauty cool. of the DNA test, y'all, this is where it's good. Mm-hmm. It gives you all mm-hmm. these people who match your DNA test. And like you just said, Wanda, they'll list by the ones who have the greatest 
amount of commonality. The ones that are your closest relatives are listed first. So if you've got a, a sister or brother out there that you didn't know about, they're going to show up at the top of the list. And they'll mm-hmm. tell you what uh, they use a measure, you know, like inches and feet and all that stuff. But the measurement device for genetic, uh, you know, for DNA is called centimorgans. And you get about half of all of your DNA from your mother and half from your father. So you get about 3,400 of these centimorgans from your, each parent. So when you get your DNA match list, people who match your DNA, it'll tell you how many centimorgans they match with you. And you can get a good idea of how close uh, a relative they are. And there are charts out there that will tell you. You know, if you've got 500 centimorgans that match, you could be either an aunt or you could be, you know, so there's a lot of different possibilities for the type, you know, the actual relationship. But but that's the key. So in, in, in brother-in-law's uh, list, they came up as half-siblings, mm-hmm. sharing a whole lot of DNA with him. And, and then, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so uh, um, it was not easy for some because many of them didn't know that their daddy had multiple children, you know, so for some it was an emotional, uh, it was emotionally charged initially, but they, they got over it and now they just have a great time together and they celebrate and it's wonderful. Oh, that's really great. The only thing is you, in order to be able to find your siblings, they have to be in the database, right? Yes, ma'am. You got to test. You mm-hmm. got to find it. So, again, those of you who yeah. are um, adopted, it's really a great way. And then also, those folks who are European that came from countries where the name was really long, you know, really long surname, and they came to America, mm-hmm. and the person that wrote it in said, That's too long. We're going to call you Smith. <laughs> or oh, like right, that. right. You know, Zabowski, Noxaturnus. And they said, No, we're going to call mm-hmm. you Smith. Um, for some of those folks also, DNA is the only way. So I wrote this book to not only be, it is, it is specifically directed towards African-American genealogy, absolutely, but some of the same tools can be used for these folks where the old country, they don't know where their families, you know, in the old country, as well as uh, folks who are adopted that don't know their families, their blood families at all. Uh, so DNA is, is for everybody. Um, you know, just get your get yourself steeled that you know there might be things that you didn't know, but mm-hmm. it's all yeah. good now. Yeah, wow. Well, I'm really looking forward to your historic novel about your paternal um, great grandmother or grandmother. Uh, she'll just be my grandmother. Yeah, my grandmother. Dave. Your grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a, gonna be really was- good. She was the first, as far as we know, certified mortician, uh, mm-hmm. undertaker, embalmer in Cleveland, Ohio. And she ran uh, the Marshall Funeral Home with her brother-in-law, Thomas Marshall, the fellow that my dad was mm-hmm. named after. And so they, yeah, wow. and so really amazing. And, and, and all the, the organization she was involved in at the ground level, in a leadership position, I just I just can't imagine, and she always looked good. She always made sure she stood out, you know. If everyone is wearing black, she was wearing a white dress because she's the only female. Mm-hmm. So she really, really mm-hmm. wanted to make her mark, it sounded like. 
But, uh, yeah, it's, it, and that's the whole point. We don't know what our ancestors went through, the things that they may have done, marvelous things, just like inventors. How many of us knew about that, you know, the traffic light was invented by a black man? that the, you know, mm-hmm. how to make shoes, the shoe lasting machine was developed by a black man and all the women, mm-hmm. the contributions of women that nobody knows about because our history hasn't been written uh, in the, you know, in, it's a little bit better in the textbooks now in the schools than it was when I went to school, but we've got to do our own stories, write our own stories instead of letting people write our history for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly true. Well, I want to thank you so much for finding also the search for our enslaved uh, Williams ancestors. Um, you know, which is uh, uh, which is sort of like you know, this is your journey, but it's like a prototype. Like this is how I found Otho. You know, and so this is how you can find whomever, right? <laughs> yes, ma'am. And, exactly. Uh, yeah, and then the other, it's not you the know, only the one. first. I need to say that. This is not the only way to do a book. I'm not saying that this is the Bible of books. I'm just saying it's a way, and it might help you. There are lots and lots of mm-hmm. other hints and tips and visuals. It might help you if it does, fantastic. That's my mission is to try to encourage people to just try. Get it published. Even mm-hmm. though you don't know everything right now, just publish a first edition book. Get it out there. You can always come back in five years and add to it. Oh, I got some more stories. Oh, I found some more information. But whatever you have now, just write it, publish it, mm-hmm. send it to the Library yeah. of Congress. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But thank you. Yeah, I was thank looking at. Much. I appreciate it. I, I oh. love this this forum. This blog talk radio is is very cool. Yeah, and thank you for letting us know about you know this other uh, African American genealogy. Uh, program on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, definitely want to yes, tune in. Right. And uh, and about Maggie, I went to that website and they've got a picture of the 2018 Institute. And they look all happy. They're all like smiling, yes. like I know where my people are. Yeah, <laughs> it's really great. You know, sort of, you know, learning a lot of- about your family. Yeah, yeah, it just makes you feel so much richer, right? Yes, and and you and share it with the children, the grandchildren, so they know they come from somebody, instead of how mm-hmm. we're normally portrayed, where we come from nobody but jailbirds and slaves. You know, mm-hmm. we, there's more to us than that, and so we need to study it and find out what it is. And so, anyway, well, thank mm-hmm. you very much, yeah. Martha. Oh, you're welcome, and I hope you have a wonderful book talk tomorrow at Underground Books as a part of the uh, uh, the Sacramento Black um, Book Festival, which is um, having a really wonderful reception this evening. And uh, do you happen to know the uh, the website address for uh, Sacramento Black Book Festival that we can share with our audience really quickly as we uh, conclude? I sure do. And okay, super. It's on my Facebook page, and so let me look. But it's pretty much just what you said. <laughs> it's a, it's pretty long, <laughs> but it's um, okay. Come on, so right there. Okay, so it is, it is, http Sacramento Black Book Fair dot com. So if you just type in Sacramento Black Book Fair dot com, all one word then uh it should come up in your in your browser 
and it should be, you know, the HTTP colon slash slash sacramentoblackbookfair.com. And then also, if I could please put out a little plug, on June 8th, I will be having an open studio tour. It's a garden art show in my garden Mm -hmm. studio on June 8th from 10 to 5, and that's part of the Elk Grove Fine Art Center art tour. And they have uh, the map. They have all the information about the other studios available. But I'll be showing my black or selling my black artwork, and it's mainly outdoor artwork, and but all kind of with an African sort of twist. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for saying that because also I want to let our audience know that another treat about your book is that your art is in it. Like you have some work in the book as well. My art and my mother's art. My mother was an artist all of her oh, life, yeah. but, a only, right. but a professional artist after she retired from education, from being an educator. But she was phenomenal, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to honor her by having her work in the book. And on the mm-hmm. first page, the cover of The Ancestors Are Smiling, that's my mom's painting mm-hmm. on the front, along with pictures mm-hmm. of our ancestors who are profiled in that book. So right. it's all good, and that's the way to share and to honor the ancestors in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it easy um, getting published, um, or was it hard? <laughs> um, I'm sorry. So, well, it's a learning curve, and I was self-published, and so there are lots of classes available. Um, I went to the California Lawyers for the Arts. I think you interviewed someone recently from there. Oh, yeah. And, uh, right, yeah, the executive yeah. director. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they, they give classes all the time on how to start a business, oh. how to do self-publishing. Mm-hmm. I would really recommend people take it. And there are lots of hints and tips on Lulu, L-U-L-U dot com. That's one uh, uh, source that people use to print their books. And I used Amazon's, um, it's called KDP Kindle. You know, most people know about a Kindle book. So KDP.com now produces print books also. And they have lots and lots Mm. of, of instructions, videos on how to do it. The first time it's difficult what I did uh, in this Solving Your Mystery chapter of my book, I have all those steps mm-hmm. on how to do the self-publishing. Oh. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. but, but there's a lot more detail you got to get into. And it's, yeah. So it's, it's, it's challenging at first, but then the second book was easier. And, mm-hmm. of course, you've got to go through and make sure you get a copy editor to look at your manuscript. You've got to get other people to read your book and give you their ideas. You know, there's a lot of steps, but I have all of those in the solving your mystery chapter in the finding Oko book. Um, so, okay. so yes, it was challenging at first, but I did it. Mm-hmm. And, and I really recommend that people try it. And that's, and that's what I'm, and, and then also you can use <clears throat> another method, which is photo books, photo books from Walgreens. Do you have a Walgreens in oh. Oakland? Yeah, uh-huh. Yep, you oh, can do a photo book. book. So uh-huh. I take, I've done 20 genealogy books using a photo book mm. method because mm. they're beautiful, they're <clears throat> they're in color, they're fairly reasonable mm-hmm. in cost. And you look out for the, the discounts. They have 40% off, 50% off, sometimes 75% off. 
So have your books mm-hmm. ready to go, and you can print them. You can mm-hmm. ship them. Excuse me. You can have them printed wherever your family members are. <clears throat> you can put a copy of it in the Library of Congress, and it's an easy way to get your books out there. And so that's with, with the presentations that I've been given. I give folks that as an option, and I show them. It's a beautiful book. You can type in it whatever you want. You can put pictures. You can do whatever you want. And that's another, that's an alternative that is less daunting than a book book. Right. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Oh, you just so, really give us so, everything we need to, to do it, and, and to I'm get fact, started. I do, I do have in on my uh, YouTube channel, one of those videos is mm-hmm. on how to do a photo book. And okay. it's, it's really a great alternative. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, I, I went to a copyright class and they said yes. Mm-hmm. that you are an author. If you make a photo book, you are a published author. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. and so you can go around saying, yep, I'm a published author. And you can send it in <laughs> and make it official mm-hmm. at the Library of Congress. You can you can do all those things. And give them oh, to your family, great. you know. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> oh, that's great. That's better than taking all these pictures and having them on these uh Sims cards, right? And and they just live there, and no one ever sees them. Thank you. How many? I have thirty-one thousand photos on my phone. Seriously, mm. and I should. Wow. If, wow. I, if something mm. happens, now it's on the cloud. It's in the cloud. But if mm. nobody knows yeah. about them, it doesn't count. Mm-hmm. It doesn't right. matter. And so that's why I still think books have a place. Books that you can hold, and e-books are great. But a book that mm-hmm. you can hold and actually hand to your grandchildren is fabulous mm-hmm. that they can put on their shelves, that they can read, that you can put in a library, put them in your local libraries. I, I, I know I, I'm repetitive, but it's so important. Mm-hmm. And you can do it with right. a photo book. Mm-hmm. That's a great I'm not idea. sure how many books. I've traveled a lot. And then bookstores, yeah. underground books. You know, you're, you're, there are mm-hmm. bookstores left. Put them in there, too. You travel right. a lot, you said. Yeah, yeah, and I've got all these pictures, and um, and I haven't been invited necessarily to share my travels with anyone over the past, what, 12 years. And so I've got all these photos and all these moments, interviews and everything. I can just put them in a book. Uh, yeah, I can do the photo yeah, book. That I sounds mean, great. Seriously, that's what I do when I come back, and then when I do mm-hmm. these genealogy trips, I just did three. Mm-hmm. I just, like, like a couple of weeks ago, I put together three photo books. They're twenty some odd mm. pages each, and they're mm-hmm. full color. And that's that's what I want to share. And I do I I do the same thing for when we go traveling. I use the photo mm-hmm. books, and and like you said, you travel, you can have a fo- a book with you, thin little book. You can put ten of them mm-hmm. in your suitcase, and when you go around, yeah. even like if you're giving talks or whatever. And you can put them out mm-hmm. there, and people can see them. Right. Because you, you obviously are mm-hmm. a visual person with your interest in the arts and things like that. So they're they're marvelous, and they give people ideas, mm-hmm. and that's what I want to do. I want to give them ideas on what they can do themselves. In fact, I have a step by step process that I just give out at my talks. You know, if you want to learn how to do a photo book, this is exactly how you do it with screenshots and everything with Walgreens. I'm not. I don't have stock in Walgreens, but it's right down the street from my house, <laughs> and I can mm-hmm. and I can do the photo book. They'll print it right away. I can pick it up within three hours. 
you know, I don't have shipping to worry about. They'll print it across country. It, it's just a wonderful – Costco does it. All kinds of places do it. Um, Betterfly.com is a wonderful company, but I believe, you know, they you'd have to ship it. I do my big books on Shutterfly. But um, it's an option. It's an alternative that people can use to get those pictures, to get those stories out there. So, yeah, it works. Oh, that's great. Yeah, wow. Well, send me your your slide presentation about, um, you know, the Costco Walgreens um, photo book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the step-by-step. Yeah, the step by the step. Mm-hmm. The, the step by step for the Walgreens. Yeah, and it's okay. just, and I just say, hand it out to whomever you wish, because I want people <laughs> to do it. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I really do. I honestly, truly want people to just try it. Just try it once. Mm-hmm. Just try it once. Right. I have books okay. on my grandkids. You know, the first five years mm-hmm. of their lives, right. from the grandmother's point of view, yeah. blah blah blah. Yeah. You, you can do it for <laughs> anything. I just did one for my oh, African cultures art business. So now I can take that mm. around. 200 pictures of my art. So whatever your imagination can think of, you can do with a photo book. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's really great. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, and I, I hope we have others. I particularly would love to speak to you once you get back from um, the uh, um the conference, the the uh, the Maggie, yeah. the Maggie conference, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just in case I can't fit it in my schedule this year, because um, I, mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to check my date book. But it looks really awesome. Um, July mm-hmm. 9th through 11th at the Genealogy Center at Allen County Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah, mm-hmm. looks like it's gonna be really, really cool. So thanks for sharing that Absolutely. resource as well. Sure. But it's all about people have been very generous to me, very Mm -hmm. generous to me with their knowledge and bending over backwards to help me do these books. And if I can help others, fantastic. Spread the word. Mm -hmm. Everybody, spread the word. (laughs) Spread the word. (laughs) You take good care. It's wonderful speaking to you. And thank you so much for the lovely book, and I'm looking forward to finishing it. Oh, good deal. Thank you very much, Wanda. I appreciate it. It was fun. All right. Peace and blessings. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So we're going to close out the show with uh, Gina Breedlove's Free. (laughs) 